Okay. So, so let's do it. Okay. All right. So uh, you want to start again? Uh, yes. Let me read something at the beginning. Sure. Sure. Okay. Hello. Uh, my name is Michelle O'Brien, and I will be having a conversation with Donna Cartwright for the New York Times, tr sorry, New York City Trans Oral History Project in collaboration with the New York Public Library's Community Oral History Project. This is an oral history project centered on the experiences of trans-identifying people. It is December 23rd, 2017, and this is being recorded at the NYU Department of Sociology. Hello, Donna. Hello, Michelle. Okay. So tell me about what you were just talking about, about how much trans people's lives have changed since the 90s. Hugely, hugely. I mean, the, the background of this is that I came out in 1997-98, so I'm roughly 20 years old as a trans person. And the way that I was talking uh, about a young friend of mine, a trans woman in her early 20s who was recently married in a very conventional church service that, um, you know, there, everyone just accepted it as a young woman getting married. And it was so touching to me that um, her life expectations and life um, experience as a trans woman who came out or began came, coming out probably when she was in undergraduate in college um, is so so hugely different from what people experienced in the 90s and who either people who experienced in the 80s and 70s when it was even phenomenally more difficult um, pe you know younger people particularly who come out as trans have a much better chance of living what is sometimes referred to as a normal life you know as a life where they're not a curiosity to everyone. They're just another person. Um, and they're a person with maybe a different history, but they're not um, somebody you whisper about, etc. So that has changed a great deal. And I am fortunate and privileged to have watched that change occur in the last 20 years. Um, so uh, basically, that's what I was covering. Um, go ahead. Okay. Um, so uh, perhaps start off and give us uh, a broad arc of like what are the major places you've lived during what phases of your life. All right. I was born in New Jersey mm -hmm. in the New York suburbs um, in 1946. Uh, I was raised in the Jersey suburbs. Uh, I lived a fairly conventional middle, middle class life, except that I had this thing that I became aware of when I was around four or five years old, that something about gender was different for me. Um, I, my parents, my father worked in New York when I was born, although later the company moved out to Jersey and, and he worked in and lived in New Jersey. Um, and, but we were in the suburbs and everybody sort of was in the orbit of New York. Um, so, you know, that when the, I was seven years old when the New York Daily News published the story of Christine Jorgensen. Uh, I remember it was on television. I remember it, my parents may have actually had a copy of that paper and talked about it. And I think I looked at it 
or became sort of absorbed the idea that this person had gone from male to female. Um, and in a way that I could not articulate, I was thrilled. I think I somehow led on to my parents that I really liked this idea, and they <laughs> led on quickly that I was not to like it. Um, but um, so, and for a long time, really, that was all you really knew about trans people. There was Christine Jorgensen, and uh, when I went to college, I went to college at Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore, uh, starting in the fall of 1964. Um, there are several things that um, are um, base points for things that happened later. And yes, exactly. So, um, and they don't seem immediately related. But for example, during, in, I think in the spring of 65, um, I was walking across the street in front of the, of the liberal arts campus where I was a student. I had a copy of the New York Times, and on the front page there was an article that said that the Johns Hopkins University was starting a gender clinic, um, which I think was referred to as either a sex change or a transsexual clinic. Um, and Hopkins was the first one in the country, I believe. I looked at that, and I, it was another of those shock thrill moments, just like I described with the Christine Jorgensen thing. I, oh my God, this is here. And yet I already knew that I must keep this at arm's length. I must keep it a secret. I cannot let anyone know, etc. Because I had been impressed at several points during my upbringing that um, my parents were concerned about any outward display of femininity that I made. And they were also concerned when I took one of the personality tests that I forget which one it was uh, in maybe my sophomore year in high school. And it showed that my masculinity level was fairly low. Uh, and my parents were concerned about that. So I got the idea that this was dangerous country. Um, so that was going on. And yet I, I built a wall around it and put it in a vault and didn't pay attention to it. But I was also becoming an activist, a political activist. Um, I had been somewhat interested and supportive of the civil rights movement while I was in high school. Um, in the summer between high school and college, which is so appropriate because it's, you know, it's really between time. Um, I, a friend of mine, a guy who was in my class, but had, he was more mature than I had. He had a car. I didn't. Um, he could go where he wanted. I was more li limited by, you know, I was limited to where my family would take me or I could go by public transportation. He said, hey, let's go down to the Democratic Convention in Atlantic City. We don't have tickets. We can't get in, but we can see what's going on. Uh, so I drove down with him and we parked and we walked over to the Atlantic City Convention Hall. And when we got there, outside the convention hall was a picket line. The Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party was protesting so the seat. 64? Yes, yeah, 64 yeah. Uh, Democratic Convention. Uh, they were protesting the seating of the, the regular Democratic uh, delegates to the convention. They had demanded 
that they be recognized as the real Democratic Party of Mississippi. Um, Lyndon Johnson was wary of that and wanted to not blow up the party, particularly in the South. So he told Hubert Humphrey, I am told, I mean, I don't know this by, from personal knowledge, but they were the sort of accepted story is that Johnson told Hubert Humphrey that Hubert Humphrey could be his vice president if Humphrey would help him get, away, get rid of this problem. And Humphrey in turn delegated the task to Walter Mondale, who was then the attorney general of Minnesota. And Mondale came up with the compromise, which was not much of a compromise, which gave uh, two of the MFDP people uh, seats as guests of the convention, which they rejected uh, properly in my view, but which also caused the, Mississippi, the white Mississippi delegation to walk out. Um, I remember this in particular because when I got there, and we and my friend and I both went on the picket line for maybe 10 minutes or 15 minutes, uh, which was basically my stepping across the line into activism. Um, and I was probably only 20 yards from Fannie Lou Hamer, who was being introduced by, inter interviewed by television. So, um, and since then I've actually learned that another of my high school classmates was there and we didn't know it. And a guy who I know in Baltimore was there and I didn't know it. Um, this is something that seems to, to link people you wouldn't know. Um, so uh, that was important. Uh, when I got to college, only weeks later, um, I joined, I think in my second week, I joined the Students for a Democratic Society. And soon thereafter, I joined Baltimore Corps. Um, within, in my first semester, I was arrested at least twice. And in my f first year, I was, these were demonstrations uh, for fair housing in, against segregated apartment buildings. And in my first year, I, was, I think I was arrested three or four times. Um, those arrests, although they upset my parents, um, were not particularly traumatic. What would happen, because the city had been through waves of civil rights demonstrations about public accommodations. Public accommodations discrimination was already illegal in Baltimore because the, and in the country, because the Civil Rights Act of 1964 had been passed that spring. But housing discrimination was not yet illegal, so CORE had shifted its focus to that. Um, but when you were arrested on one of those demonstrations, they would, the police would take you in the wagon down to the nearest police precinct and would, they would book you, they'd put you in a cell, you'd wait for a couple of hours, and then the lawyer for CORE or the NAACP would show up, um, ask for the charges, and then ask what the bail was. Um, because previously, in previous years, when they were doing public accommodations, demonstrations where lots of people were arrested, people had refused bail as a way of crowding the jails and creating a crisis. So the, new t the city's new tactic at the time that I came along a year later was that they released everyone on their own recognizance. And so you got out, and then the city basically sat on the charges. They never brought you to trial. Eventually, they were dismissed. Um, so it was kind of like getting arrested without much cost. Um, 
<clears throat> so in that period, in 64, 65, I was a student at Johns Hopkins. I was active in the SDS, active in civil rights, also active, beginning to be active in uh, demonstrations against the Vietnam War. Um, there was a certain irony about the way that my consciousness developed. In my freshman year, first semester at Hopkins, I was probably one of the very few people who was ever simultaneously a member of the SDS and the ROTC. Um, I dropped ROTC after the first semester because my comrades in SDS persuaded me that the war in Vietnam is wrong and I should not uh, place myself in a position so where I would have to the go SDS there. Yes, out of racial justice commitments, but not initially anti-imperialist. Right, exactly. That, that took more understanding that, yeah. came, that came later. Um, and so, you know, in my sophomore year, I became a socialist. Uh, I was arrested in a big anti-war demonstration, for, at least by Baltimore standards, in the spring of 66. Six of us SDS members were arrested at an army recruiting station about five blocks from the, the main liberal arts campus. Um, and the difference was uh, very plain to see. We had um, a group of our supporters, perhaps 15 or 20, were holding signs while we got went into the recruiting station, refused to leave, got thrown out. Um, at that point, the city police took charge of us. They held us while we were on the sidewalk there was a there was our people and then there was another crowd of pro-war mostly high school students who were around in the periphery who were shouting pro-war slogans while our people showed pro anti-war slogans the police used that as a pretext to charge us with disorderly conduct on the grounds that our um the radical disjunction of our views with those of the crowd were making a a breach of the peace more likely. And so in the judgment of a police officer, they ordered us to not sit on the sidewalk, although they were actually holding us down while we were there. Um, they put us in the wagons. We were taken to the police price bank. Unlike the previous arrests, we were given a magistrate's trial in the police precinct. Uh, we did have our lawyer present. Um, he convicted us of a disorderly conduct and sentenced us all to two months in jail. Wow. Um, we had the right to a, automatic right to appeal to the criminal courts downtown, which we did. We went through a jury trial, uh, almost got off, but then there was a person who gave perjured testimony that, um, that supported the police view, and we were all convicted and sentenced again to two months in jail. Um, we served three days. The ACLU came along, bailed us out, told, appealed our case, and told us that we're get, you know you're out, but you have to be aware that you must be available to serve your sentences if the appeal fails, and we cannot tell you when that may, might be. Uh, as a result of that, I withdrew from college. I didn't know whether this was going to come along and you know in, you know take a whole almost a whole semester out. Uh, and I decided that I should look for work and sort of try to ride this out and see where it went. Uh, in the end, we were in the courts for four years. Um, we won our case at the U.S. Supreme Court in 1970. Um, but in the meantime, 
Uh, I had left college. My parents were not happy. Uh, they were even less happy. On, they were even more unhappy than they were when I found out it was first the time I was arrested. Um, they were nevertheless decent people who told me that I was still part of the family. They still loved me, and I could come and come up and visit with them or stay with them when I wanted to, but they were not going to support me. I needed to make my own living. I worked as a day laborer. I worked as a library aide. Um, and after those things, which were both minimum wage jobs, that was about a year or so, um, I got a job as an editorial assistant on a newspaper. I did well at that. I got a better job at the Baltimore Sun as a copy editor trainee. Um, and the great difference about the Baltimore Sun from the first newspaper was that the Sun was a union shop. Um, and the trainee position, although it didn't pay very much money, it guaranteed good training. That is, they made the company commit that the company would give hands-on instruction to the people who were trainees. The chief of the copy desk put his assistant in to run the copy desk for something like four weeks while he, he, the chiefs of the desk sat with me and taught me how to do the work. Um, and that was something I'll always credit with, uh, you know, having, you know, not gotten the conventional college degree, having no real work experience and um, no credentialed skills, I was able to learn a trade and work and support myself. Um, that always stays with me as a very personal uh, experience of the value of the labor movement to working people. Um, so, okay, so we're, I'm, I went copy editor at the, at the Sun for eight years. I did fairly well at it, pretty well, I guess. Uh, I got one promotion while I was there. Um, I made good money. I had a, good, a decent living standard. Um, and on the other side, my trans self, self started to sneak out of the little prison that I had put it in. Um, I started to go out at night, um, you know, in um, various kinds of feminine dress. Um, <clears throat> I didn't have any makeup. I did not have a, any a convincing wig or anything like that. Uh, I obviously looked fairly strange. But I was, you know, I, you know, for one thing, I worked until one in the morning, you know, and then I would go home, I would, you know, have dinner or whatever. And if I still felt like I really wanted to let Donna come out a little bit, I would go out and be three in the morning and, you know, be out there. But it was this way of being out in the world that was different than hiding in your room. Uh, and I did that. And uh, one night in 1974 uh, I was out and a police car came by no, or saw me uh, and I mean the, the cop in the car saw me um, he pulled over um, asked for ID um, he I did have fortunately I had my wallet with me and I gave him my driver's license but of course it had my male name um, 
and it had the M marker on the license. And he then radioed into the precinct saying, I've got this whatever, and I don't know what he, term he used, but uh, this person, and he asked if female impersonator laws were still on the books. They told him they were not. They had been, I believe there had been some court decision that nullified all of them maybe a few years earlier. So it was not illegal to be dressed as a woman if you were, they thought, a man. You know, So they couldn't get me for that. So he then had them run my license through their records, and they found out that I had uh, about $100 worth of unpaid parking tickets. Uh, in those days, they could take you in for that. And they did. Uh, they took me to the, to the district, northern district precinct. Um, and uh, when they brought me in, they brought me first up to the desk where the desk sergeant is. And, you know, the, the cop who's, who arrested me sort of tell, smirks and tells the other, the other cop that I'm, you know, I have these tickets. And so uh, they decide also that they're going to frisk me. And in the process of frisks, frisking me, basically they beat me. They hit me. You know, several of them hit me. Um, not hard enough to knock me down. Uh, not hard enough to leave a really significant bruise. But nevertheless, I was beaten. Then um, in that police precinct, and I think most others in Baltimore City and perhaps most in the United States, um, where they take people to detain them, and particularly overnight, there'll be two banks of cells, one for men, one for women. And so they took me down the men's cells and they woke all the guys up and sort of paraded me down there. And they were all hooting and yelling at me. Uh, and um, these cells were bunk cells. There were two to a bunk, two to a cell, and I went into an empty cell. That was a stroke of luck. Um, but it became, you know, as I thought about it, it became clear that, you know, in the remaining hours of darkness, it was quite possible that I would get a roommate, and not one that I would want. You know, I, you know, I mean, to, not to be coy about it, I was quite concerned about being molested. And or you know other forms of violence, beaten or whatever. Um, I managed to get. I called. I asked them if I had the right to a phone call, and they said yes. And I did have a dime with me, and I made a call to a friend who got me some clothes and got, and got the money to pay the tickets and got me out. Um, and I walked home, and I was no longer. Fa I didn't have to go back to the police station because the tickets were paid. Um, I didn't face any criminal charge. Um, I was so ashamed that I'd thanked my friend, paid my friend back with a check, but said, I'd like it if we, if it's a few months before we see each other again, I'm really, and I was really, you know, I was so overpowered by this that I couldn't face my friend, you know, um, and so, I mean, she knew that I had been wearing these women's clothes because I had told her. That's what I told her from the, on the phone. So anyway, I was traumatized by that. Um, I did, you know, so I kept my nighttime activities much more cautious. 
Um, I worked at the Sun for another two years, almost three. Um, and then I got, uh, I was urged by a friend to apply to the New York Times for a job as a copy editor. And I did, and they invited me up to take a tryout. Uh, this is the very beginning of 1977. And uh, so I did. I went up and I took a tryout and I did well and they offered me a job. Um, when I had gone up, I really had not thought that I w wasn't really sure I wanted to take a job even if they offered, but they offered me a lot of, really a lot of money. Um, and so uh, I thought, well, maybe I should take this. And so I did. And um, I moved up to the New York area again. I stayed with my parents um, for a few months until I got an apartment in the part of New Jersey that's right along the Hudson. And I commuted into New York. I worked in New York for 30 years. Um, and I retired in 2006. In, during the 30 years that I worked for the Times, I was primarily a labor activist. I was a shop steward. Um, I was a member of the shop committee. I was a chief steward. I was a member of the local executive board. I was uh, a con national convention delegate. Most of that time in a fairly short period of time when the left wing of the union won briefly won control of the local. We later lost it. Um, but for all of that time, uh, as much as I could be, I was active in the union. Uh, I kept my trans self, again, largely to myself. I did go out some. I was fairly cautious about it. Um, I never had a, I didn't have a really bad experience with the police again. Um, but my, my awareness of my transness increased as time went along. Um, in 1985, no, 86, early 86, I had just broken up with my girlfriend. I dated, I did, to the extent that I dated, which wasn't much, I dated women. And I appeared to be heterosexual, although the fact that I was so inactive sometimes made people ask, and I would tell them, well, well, I'm sort of bisexual, and I would just look, kind of let that, people would not press further usually, so I just kind of let that be there. Um, but after I broke up with my girlfriend, I happened to have, I had had maybe one or two books that were about trans people. One of them I found, I found in the library at the Baltimore Sun when I was still working there, which was called Transvestites and Transsexuals by Deborah Heller Feinblum. It's a um, fairly rare book now, but it was very, she did a lot of research in Boston in the early 70s about trans people. And I read that book with great interest. Um, and then Renee Richards published her autobiography called Second Serve. I got a copy of that. I did not read it immediately, um, but uh, in, I'm trying to remember the exact order that this was, and it probably doesn't matter very much, but somewhere in there, I read that book um, and it resolved some questions for me. I mean, and you know, if, 
it's okay. I will go into the, you know, some somewhat intimate questions essentially about how I could be trans, still be attracted to women, and yet also have this female identity, which was not particularly lesbian. I was, um, you know, there was like this sort of um, compartmentalization. When I presented as a man, I was interested in women. When I presented it as a woman, I was interested in men. Um, if I could imagine myself with a female body, in those circumstances, I could uh, imagine myself attracted to men. And, um, but if I was in, a, in my actual material male body, I had no interest in sex with men. So it was very much, it was as I later learned, um, the category of sexual orientation, which was developed by the LGB part of the LGBT movement, uh, is correct as far as they are concerned. It is, um, it's determined by who you're oriented to having sex with, but it accepts your own gender as a fixed given. Um, for trans people, it's a little different because your own gender is not fixed. In fact, when your gender becomes fluid, all bets are off. You know, um, the conventional categories don't hold you anymore. So that had been a real concern of mine. How can I be a transsexual if I also am attracted to women? In fact, another sign of my life in you know, actually over the, that long haul uh, was that although I had both men and women friends, I generally had more women friends than men friends. I tended to prefer the company of women if I could, if I could find it. Um, and that was a, a, a thing I could not explain to myself or to others. Um, so Renee Richards' autobiography, actually, although she did not put it in the terms that I've just used, she did state quite clearly that when uh, she was Richard Raskin, she uh, was married to a woman and had a relationship with that woman, that, you know, and they had a son. Um, but she also had a secret life in which she uh, dressed as female. And in those circumstances, she was able to be attracted to men. So that gave me a kind of validation. There's somebody like me. This is, I, I am a possible variant, you know, which is a, something I think that it's a little strange to say, but it's something that we all want to find because we don't like to be the only one. Um, so have, having read that book, this is all around 1985, 96, 86, excuse me, 1985 to 86. Um, one day I was driving to work and I had, I think I had just re finished reading her book. And as I drove across the Hudson, I had this sort of epiphany that, you know, I really am transsexual. That's what I really am. That is the only category that explains me. They didn't have the transgender label yet. Um, and I said, okay, so that's really what I am. And I my best recollection of that, and it's hard to remember feelings 35 years later, is that there was like, it was taking a weight off of me. 
that now I finally knew I could explain myself at least to myself. I also, I was 39 years old and I concluded at that time that I was too old to come out as trans and too, you know, and that I was too big to actually come out and be, you know, the acceptable image of a woman and so on and so on and so on. You know, I had all the body image stuff that people have. So I decided, okay, that's what I am. This is very relieving for me. Uh, and it actually, I think, sort of spurred my nighttime adventures. You know, sometimes, I, you know, I, particularly in my car, I would, you know, sometimes after work, I would go down to the meat market district and um, mingle with, with the trans sex workers and so on. And, uh, you know, and actually in a couple of cases built up a personal relation. I mean, they wanted, because they, I, I would do that dressed and they, I mean, as, as a woman and they could see that I was somehow like, and they actually wanted to talk to me and I wanted to talk to them. And, you know, I mean, it never went very far because sex workers lead extremely unstable lives. And if you meet somebody once, the chance that you will meet her again in the same place is not all that likely. Um, but that was sort of an interesting putting my toe in the water of real trans people. I never joined a cross-dressers club. I don't know why. It's possibly simply I was too afraid of any real encounter um, with people that wasn't in the dark of night. Um, and so, okay, so I, I'm enough, you know, basically, okay, so I've decided that I am trans, I am, but I'm not going to do anything about it. I built a wall around it, a bigger wall than the first time. Um, but it had to be contained. Uh, and yet other things happened. In 1993, um, the Gay and Lesbian Employees of the New York Times began to organize. They wanted domestic partner benefits and they wanted a non-discrimination clause in the guild contract. The newspaper guild was the union there. Um, and few or none of them were union activists. So they needed somebody to say, how do we get this on the agenda of the coming book contract negotiations? They came to me. In the newsroom, I was generally known as the person you come to if you have a union question. So they came to me and said, how do we do this? And I said, hey, I'll be glad to help. And I said, if you want to get this on the agenda of negotiations, first thing you have to do is show some, some support that goes beyond the gay and lesbian employees that you've got broad support. You need to circulate a petition. I showed them how to do that. I mean, I showed them about how, how you, the physical stuff of making up a petition form, but also sort of key tips like if you have a petition uh, and you, it's the, the, it's a blank one. I mean, it's no signatures on it yet. You either sign it yourself or you find somebody who you believe, have good reason to believe is sympathetic and who is also a well-liked and respected person. And you, your first two or three signatures need to be persuaders, people who other people would be glad to sign. So I kind of talked to them about the, the way that you could do this as an organizing tactic. And I also told them I would be glad to take one of those petitions and circulate it myself, and I did. 
and I got them, you know, 10 or 15, however many signatures were on a form. And, you know, they were, they turned them in and they then told, they gave them to both the union and the company so that it didn't become a partisan football in negotiations. And they also wanted to make, again, correctly, this is shrewd, they wanted to make the union and the company compete to be the most inclusive. So, um, and that's basically how it worked. They, they got DP benefits and they got non-discrimination in the contract. Um, and that in turn chipped away another piece of my self-imposed fortress because I had actually come out and helped LGBT people do something about their LGBTness. So maybe it wasn't so impossible for me to do something about my own LGBTness, except the T part. I mean, that was the part I had to do. And that was the part that still seemed remote. <clears throat> this is 1994-95. Um, in the summer of 1995, spring and summer of 1995, you know, I had been sort of ruminating on this experience helping the the gay and lesbian people. And um, I also, I'm not quite sure of the sequence events that led to this, but I, uh, this, yeah, I think it was in the fall of 94, I was called for jury duty in Hudson County, New Jersey, where I lived. And when you go for jur jury duty, you know, you get see, there's a big jury room and you wait until they call you for a panel and then they'll call you for a panel and, and likely as not, you're going to get stricken and sent back to the jury room. And this can go on for a week. So you bring stuff to read. I brought um, Hollywood Androgyny by Rebecca Bell Metero um, and read it. Um, and it was one of those things that considered androgyny, I believe, I'd have to go back and look to be sure, but it was, it was, androgyny was placed in a gay frame rather than a trans frame. But it was apparent enough to me <coughs> that this is about people who are gender fluid, you know, about Hollywood stars who do it, about people who do this either as an openly trans character or as a, you know, as, as somebody who's concealed or whatever. So it was thrilling to me sitting there in the jury room. I only was on a jury for half of one day. That case was settled. Eventually my panel was dismissed. <clears throat> and at the end of that experience, oh yes, it was 1994. I had run for shop chairman at the New York Times. I was the candidate of the left caucus. We had various names, but we were basically the left caucus against the conservative business unionists who dominated that local for many years. I did respectably well. I got 45% of the vote, but I didn't win. Um, and it was clear to us in the left caucus that we had reached a plateau. We were had a strong following, but we weren't going to win control of anything. I started to think, I've done this now for about 20 years. 
maybe it's time for me to put this on the shelf for a while and attend to my, the rest of myself, which I did. Um, you know, in 1995, I took whatever trans-related books I had and I read them and I got as many more as I could. I started to frequent the uh, there's a, on the corner of 8th Avenue and 42nd Street, there was Show World, which was a uh, <clears throat> peep show, uh, porno store, uh, and, you know, there was, you know, sex work sort of going on in the periphery of it and so forth. But I would go over there and look for anything they had related to trans. And I started to find some stuff. And, I, you know, I wrote away and subscribed to some stuff. This is all happening in 1995. And I'm opening up my trans world to a much greater degree, starting to reach out for contact. Um, at the end of 95, I decided I have not actually had a serious conversation about this with anyone in my life except for the occasional trans sex workers in the meat market district. But they were ephemeral. You know, they were there and then they were gone and you might never see them again. But I had never had a serious conversation with anybody who I knew on a sustained basis for 30 plus years. And I said, I've got to talk to a therapist about this. And I started looking for a therapist. Um, I wrote away for referrals. Um, I got one. I got, um, I started calling around to therapists, first, first in New Jersey and then in New York. Um, and I found a woman named Alana Berger, um, who was a therapist who did deal with trans issues. Uh, and I saw her for a good three months on a once a week basis, which is fairly heavy duty for therapy. I mean, some people do it every day, but I didn't. But I mean, once a week, at least, you know, you're spending some real money and you're, it's pretty focused. Uh, I spent two or three months telling her my story. Um, and at the, as we went toward the end of that three months, she said, one of the things she said was, you need to talk to other trans people. You need to have social contact. Um, and I was still shy of that. I didn't really know quite what to do. I was a little afraid of, uh, organized institutions. It seemed maybe a little too public. She had suggested that I call the LGBT Center in New York, and I kept putting it off. But then she, I think she piqued, deliberately piqued my interest by telling me that there were two conferences related to trans issues coming up um, that were in New York that I could go to. And she suggested that I did. And since I was sort of always somebody who was interested in often the more intellectualized part of things like this, I went to the first one, which was at CUNY Graduate, <clears throat> where they had uh, Jameson Green, um, Kim Koko Iwamoto, who was the first trans person to be elected to public office, as far as we know, um, and um, Rosalind Blumenstein, who ran the LGBT Center's trans uh, gender identity project. She was there too. Um, and I sat there and was it for the first time was 
in a discussion framework in the same room with trans people who were talking about themselves unashamed and in a positive way. <coughs> Excuse me, I still choke up a little thinking about that. Um, and then a week or so later, there was a conference sponsored by the center, which was again, specifically trans focused. It had a number of workshops, but one of them was given by a trans woman named Antonia Gilligan, who had actually come out a few years early, maybe four or five years earlier, who talked specifically about how you prepare yourself and what to expect if you're going to have gender, what we would now call gender confirmation server, surgery, then when they called SRS or, or sex reassignment surgery. I was so thrilled by that, partly because I was, I, I mean, part of my sense of myself, if I did transition, I did want to go the whole route and have surgery and so on. But also because Antonia was such a down to earth, but very interesting, straightforward pe person who talked very intelligently and um, no BS kind of way about what you want, what you expect, what you, th you know, all, the th all of these things. She was exactly the kind of person I thought would be a friend. <clears throat> um, that day, which I remember now and have remembered since that day, was May 11th, 1996. <clears throat> um, I went to that conference and on the, I went home. I took the subway to the bus terminal. I took the bus terminal, bus home. <clears throat> and as I was on the bus going home in New Jersey, the feeling overwhelmed me that yes, maybe you can do this. And by, before I put my key in my front door lock, I had already decided that if I could find a way to do it, I was going to. Um, <clears throat> and that's another of those moments that changed my life. Um, yeah, and so uh, I, I plunged headfirst. I called up. I found I got somebody to give me Antonia Gilligan's phone number. I met her. We talked. Uh, I then did start to come around the support groups at the center. I met other trans people. Um, and, you know, that sustained me. That sustained me. The And I started electrolysis. And I started, I, I found a, um, uh, began looking for a endocrinologist to give me hormones. Um, and, oh, and my therapist, by the way, Alana Berger, around that time, see, she, and her, she was a therapist in Manhattan. Her husband was had a teaching job in the New York area. They were both Israelis. And what, he got a job at the University of Tel Aviv. So they both went back to Israel. And she so she told me, you're going to have to find a new person. And she helped me with that process. I interviewed therapists through June and July and early August of 1996 found Barbara Warren at the LGBT Center. She became my therapist for the next 10 years. Um, and she was great. She helped me through this. Um, and another thing, you know, she also, she strongly encouraged me to keep going to support group and be around other trans people. Um, I did so. And 
this is a place where my politic, you know, my left political side and my trans side started to come together. I remember being in support groups and thinking as I listened to people tell their stories that I had never seen such concentrated social disadvantage in one place. That, uh, you know, that doesn't mean it doesn't exist because, you know, I never hung out in the poorest black neighborhoods or, you know, whatever. But um, these, these were people like me and they would keep telling stories like they, you know, hadn't worked in 10 years. They were on, SS, you know, SS, uh, was it SSDI um, or, the, you know, um, they did all kinds of shady gray market stuff to work. Um, they were, um, in desperate circumstances often. Um, and, you know, we also, you know, and we, despite differences in, in background and so on, we had this camaraderie uh, that you find when you connect with other people. Um, you know, there was, I believe I, there was one support group where, um, me and maybe one other person were the only two out of 10 who were, um, currently employed. And of the others, many, perhaps most had never had a conventional job. They had been sex workers. They had been on welfare. They had been, um, people who did, um, you know, who were like, uh, under the table hairdressers and and waiters and you know did all the kinds of work that you can do without ID um, and you know I'm thinking oh my god I knew that there was a by that time fairly powerful gay movement there was no comparable trans movement that was at least recognized more broadly um, I started to think how, how can we do this? What can we, you know, how can we organize ourselves as a community? Um, and so let's see. Uh, yeah, also in 96, I had decided I was going to transition. Oh yes. I didn't, although I knew that the Times, New York Times had been, once the issue was posed, they had made a, a definite decision that they were going to embrace their gay and lesbian employees. And I believe that, uh, I, as I understand it, although I wasn't there because I wasn't out yet, but there was a meeting of the National Gay and Lesbian Journalists, Lesbian Gay Journalists Association, Gay Lesbian Journalists, the NLGJA, that group. Um, had a, either its first meeting or its second, and they invited Joe Lelyveld, who was then, I think, the managing editor of the Times. And I heard, this is a few years later, that when he stepped to the podium, he said, I am here in solidarity with my gay and lesbian brothers and sisters. And I just about cried. Um, and so, uh, I, but I also wanted to see what the reality of the Times' attitude toward trans people was, particularly how they were portrayed in the newspapers. And that was a shock. 
um, I went through the archive. I searched transgender and transsexual, and I found every article I could, printed them all out. Um, there was one. You, do you remember that there was a film called Priscilla, Queen of the Desert with Tara Stamp? Um, there, in, in that film, which was mostly about drag queens, but Terrence Stamp was portrayed as a friend of the tra drag queens who was a more transgender identified. Um, and in that group of people, I mean, it was kind of brought on stereotypes. The, the, the drag queens were portrayed really over the top. Terrence Stamp was the sort of sane and steady person in that group. The Times' review of it, or actually, no, it was an article by a Times film reviewer about Terrence Stamp, and it talked about Terrence Stamp's role in that film and a couple of others, and said that if he doesn't watch out, he's going to get stereotyped as Hollywood's leading weirdo. Oh, God. You know? I mean, really? Um, and, you know, I looked up I forget the name of this trans woman. There's a trans woman in the Philadelphia suburbs in New Jersey who came out sometime in the early 90s. And I don't know, she was accused of some kind of crime. And the police came to arrest her and she holed up in her apartment with a rifle. And she killed one policeman, I think, and, and wounded another. And she was on death row. Um, although I think she was never actually executed. But um, the coverage of her, <coughs> you know, as a person who had been accused of murder, always identified her immediately as transsexual. Said so-and-so, the transsexual who, you know, as if that was pertinent to the crime that she had committed. In the New York Times, there was an entry in the style book a very closely analogous entry that said, um, you don't specify the race of, or ethnicity of a person in connection with a crime unless it is clearly pertinent to the crime. But trans people clearly had not gotten that yet. So I saw all of this, you know, people were, so there were, you know, sometimes people, even my, my friends on the copy desk would tell a moderately anti-trans joke. Um, that's, I, don't know, I really think I'm, I'm going to get through this. Um, and I did two things. So this is in the summer of 96 or 7. I'm not quite sure because the process was a couple of years. As I went through electrolysis, I started with hormones. Uh, I started very selectively coming out to people. Um, and... Yeah, and I knew that I was going to come out at work in the spring of 1998. That I'd already, you know, I worked with Barbara Warren, and we had started a timeline, and you know, and, and made a plan, and and so on. So in the fall of '97, I was still uncertain about how it was going to go. I, because I had been involved with the Left Wing Caucus in the union, we had had need at various times to consult labor lawyers about our rights. And uh, we, there was this guy named Dan Clifton 
who was a work with Paul Clifton and Schwartz, which was a a sort of union members' rights law firm. Uh, and I I knew Dan because he had handled labor work for for the caucus before. And I called him up and I said I need to talk to you about something that's personal. I went and I talked to him. He didn't he never batted an eye when I talked to him, but he said I have to research this. In all previous cases, when he d did work for the caucus, he didn't charge us because he already knew the answers. He charged me $500 to do the... And it was justified because it was he had to dug, dig up some stuff. You know, he had to find case law. And he, what he said... Sh 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 he told to me what he found showed that I, if I ran into discrimination... You know, if I lost my job or I was, you know, in other, some other way clearly disadvantaged, I might have a court case. If, you know, there were, there were precedents, they weren't totally clear. I also, a little later than that, I went to Washington to talk to the president of the newspaper guild, Linda Foley. Now, the background of this is Linda Foley was the first woman to be pre president of the newspaper guild and may have been the first woman to be president of any AFL-CIO union. She was elected in 1995. Um, although she had been a staffer and generally a supporter of the incumbent administration, when she ran, um, the more conservative elements in the leadership did not want to support her. Uh, some of them circulated a, le a letter in which they suggested that electing her would be, quote, a social experiment. Um, I and a colleague of mine, Randy First at the Minneapolis Star Tribune, who were veterans of the, there was a national left-wing caucus sort of on, on and off in the 90s. Um, we got wind of this. I got a copy of that letter. I wrote a little one, you know, sort of one-page this big, but you know, half size, you know, half size thing that said, "Sexism rears its ugly head in the newspaper guild." And we went th through this and said, "You know, there's there's a lot of great stuff that the labor movement has done in the in terms of winning civil rights, but it also has a bad side to its history." I talked about Chinese exclusion, uh, etc. And then I said, "We are at cro I believe I haven't I haven't read it in years, although I do have a copy somewhere at home. Um, it." said something to the effect that we're now at a, at a, at a point of choice and we have to decide whether this is acceptable or not. We believe it is not. Um, and on the first day of convention, Randy and I were not delegates. We were not elected that year. Or neither of us had, were in the majority of caucus of our locals. So we went as observers. The first day of convention, all the delegates went on the outing, which was a, this is in Boston, and they went on a Boston Harbor cruise. So in the morning, the meeting room was empty. Randy and I went in, and we put our leaflets on every seat. Um, when they came back, people read it, and there was like a huge buzz around it. Um, I won't go through all the de details, but... Basically, we wound up being cover for Linda, who did not have to defend herself in a way that would make it a, the boys against the girls. Because we, who were, to all intents and purposes, two guys, had already brought this issue up. 
but we, you know, we had first, you know, blown it out there. <clears throat> and in the succeeding, this was probably in June of 95, the campaign is another three months. We um, <clears throat> it, it work with others on a letter writing campaign to the Guild's newspaper, getting people to write in and say, this is disgraceful. We should not allow this. Um, and uh, Linda asked me to help her run her campaign in New York, uh, which I did. I distributed her material both at the Times and it's, I think, at least two, two or three possibly other shops in the area uh, and found people who would circulate them. Um, so the election came. She won nationally by a huge margin. She won like two to one. It was very clear that the old guard had made a terrible mistake. Uh, I think she got nearly 70% of the vote nationally. In New York, uh, the New York local president, Barry Lipton, was actually the one who was running against Linda as the candidate of the old guard. Um, he won New York, but not by a large, but about 60-40. And the great thing was he actually lost at the New York Times, which is where I did most of the work. We actually voted for Linda. Um, so Linda won. That's in 95. Then, you know, two years later, I go to Washington and I say, Linda, I need to talk to you. I told her, look, this is coming up. Um, you know, I'm going to be coming out. What, you know, if I get in trouble, what can the union do? Um, she called in Anna Padilla, who was the human rights officer of the union, national union. And we talked and we agreed that although the contract language included sexual orientation, but not gender identity. We, you know, it included sex. And we thought that, you know, she said, well, we can probably make some of this, we can stretch some of this language and make it work if we have to. We can, we will try to protect you to the best of our ability. She then uh, told me that for courtesy purposes, I should go talk to Lipton and tell him this was coming up too, and I did. And he was actually fairly gracious. I mean, he said that they would support me too. Um, but I, I knew who my real friends were. Um, so I uh, did that, and then two months later I came out. You know, I, I posted in March, in March 1998, I posted a notice around the newsroom. Oh, that was, what a day that was. I came in with a box full, maybe several hundred copies of an open letter to my colleagues, which it was a one pager. It was about four paragraphs. It just said, you know, I'm going to, you know, we've had, you know, much experience together. I am going now through something big I need to tell you about. I'm going to start beginning my life as a woman, da, 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 you know, and, and so on. So I came in early that day. Uh, the normal starting time, for I think, for my job, it was 4 o'clock, but I came in at 3, or maybe it was 3 o'clock and I came in at 2. Um, and I put my, my box of letters on my desk, grabbed a handful of them, uh, and I, I actually, I, I was really uh, almost in a panic, but I felt that I could not let myself get bogged down in with conversation with anyone. I had to get this all done or I would never get back to my desk. So I quickly put them up in every, every Guild bulletin board around the newsroom. 
and then quickly got on the elevator and went up to other floors where I was known because I was known by lots of people because I had run for office in the union many times. I had a lot of connections and I started posting them all, you know, going up from the third floor to the 11th and then back down. When I got off the, ele <laughs> off the elevator at the third floor, which is the main newsroom floor in those days, I walked out of the elevator and started to sort of walk into the newsroom and I could see that around each bulletin board there was a clump of people. <laughs> and then one woman turned around and said, oh, hey, Don, hey, this is really interesting. You know, I mean, just friendly. And I got back to my desk. I logged on. There was a primitive internal email system we had then. And my inbox was full of supportive emails from my colleagues. Uh, it was all good. It was all good. Um, and, you know, I, I went, oh, and by, I had also consulted um, gay and lesbian colleagues, um, some of whom, I'm, one of whom, actually several of whom were actually very supportive and helpful. One of those who I had actually helped through in, you know, the, the gay and lesbian version of this in 1994, actually said it's, no, that wasn't then. No, he was, he was actually supportive then. All right, so I'll take that back. Um, and we'll come back to him later. That, that was another effort. Um, but uh, so anyway, the, so the first day was just a triumph. And I was, oh, yes, because this went up on the newsroom, there were people who surreptitiously were serving as news sources inside the Times for the Times' competition. They were, they, and so some of them called the Daily News and the Post. The Post had articles the next morning. The Post was dreadful, as one might expect. The Daily News was, was snide, but not terrible. The New York Observer had a really pretty good short notice. And then they asked me for an interview, and I gave it to them because I thought they, would, they had done the best job. Um, and then other, it, got, you know, it went around in the media world in New York. I got invited to appear on The View, you know, the Barbara Walters show at that time, which I did in June of 1998. And, you know, it was sort of fortunate that uh, things happened in, the, in the, the, the sequence that they did because another thing that I had done, and this is, you know, body issue, vanity thing, I, you know, is another of those things that I felt that I, re you know, I wanted to not only be a woman, but I wanted to be an attractive woman. Of course, we all want to be attractive, right? So during the preceding year, um, I had radically changed my diet and exercise. I dropped about 50 pounds. Um, when I went on The View, I was skinny as a rail, um, except, uh, no, I guess I hadn't had my implants then. But anyway, so I mean, I actually looked very thin. Um, I had had my, you know, my hairdresser, the, my hairdresser do my hair, and then the studio's hairdresser did my, you know, fooled with my hair, and they put the, my makeup on and all that. And I was on for a half hour and I just kept talking about, you know, trans people, if you need help, you've got to reach out, find your, trans, your LGBT center, your trans support group, you know, so on and so on. Um, 
and that was my five minutes of fame or 15 minutes of fame in, in the media. Um, so after that, uh, I, I further had confirmed my conviction that I expressed earlier that after 20 years of being a guild upstart and activist, I needed to put that down and take up another part of my life. Now, part of that was done by coming out. Um, but another part of it was part of what I had mentioned before that I had noticed about <clears throat> how terribly disadvantaged this com our trans community was. <clears throat> you know, I had heard the story of Tyra Hunter, who was the trans woman in Washington who was in an auto accident, was badly injured. And when the paramedics came, that she had ab abdominal bleeding, and they opened her pants and they found she had male genitals and they backed off and told jokes and uh, let her bleed there in the street for quite a while. Then they put her in, the, in an ambulance and they took her to the hospital where she, I believe she actually died within five or 10 minutes of getting to the hospital. Um, but <clears throat> they had let her bleed to death in the street because she was trans. Um, and to me, you know, it seemed just like um, if we can't organize ourselves around fighting that kind of prejudice, we're not going to survive. Um, and so I went on, I think it was the second National Transgender Lobby Day. Also, of course, because I'm, a, I'm very interested in history, although I don't have any college degree, but I always read a lot of history. As I came out, I also started reading all the gay and lesbian history I could and whatever trans history there was, which wasn't much. Um, and I did find out, because I started to subscribe to the tapestry, I started to describe, subscribe to <clears throat> Chrysalis, I just uh, subscribed to TNT, the Transgender News Telegraph out of San Francisco. And this was already a couple of years in, a, in the past, but I, I read about the case of Brandon Tina. And I read that trans people from all over the country had come to the trial of Brandon's killers in Falls City, Nebraska, and had, you know, sort of stood vigil um, to ensure that there was justice for this person. And so I knew that there was some stuff like that going on. I also knew that there had been one lobby day in 1995 where they had actually gone and seen people in Congress. There's another one coming up in, yeah, 97. That one was actually before I came out. I actually went on that, um, you know, uh, in Washington and, you know, hoping no one would recognize me. And no one did. But uh, as this went along, I got involved with Gender Pack, which you may remember. Uh, which was the trans community's first major effort to start a nonprofit NGO that would advocate for trans people on federal legislation. Um, and I, oh, and I also got involved with NIAGRA, the New York Association for Gender Rights Advocacy, which was started, but that was in 97, before I came out at work. Um, I believe in the spring of night. Yeah, there was a lobby day in 97, the spring of 98, perhaps, or no, maybe it was 97. Uh, there, that has to be in somebody's archive. Um, 
seven or eight of us got together in somebody's apartment in Greenwich Village and we formed the New York Association for Gender Rights Advocacy because we had concluded from the Washington lobby days that we weren't getting anywhere with federal legislation anytime soon, but we thought maybe we could get state and city. So we founded Niagara. Uh, yeah, it was four years. It was from 1998 to 2002. Um, and we worked on a city civil rights bill. And we also worked um, in somewhat more problematic ways on the state bill. Which, from which we were not included, you know, we were left out, then yes, we were going to be included, but then yes, that turned out to be we were only included in the Senate bill, which wasn't going to be the one that passed, and so on and so on. I mean, there's, you know, I went through from 97, I would say, through 2002 or three, the experience of these bitter struggles within the LGBT community about trans inclusion. This was in New York, city in New York State, in New Jersey, in Maryland, um, other places I knew about but didn't live. But, you know, I, I, I actually did visit Maryland while I was going. Maryland, there was a trans, there was an LGBT bill, anti-discrimination bill in the 1999 state legislature that was tabled pending a study of discrimination. And in that, that went on for two years, they reconvened in 01. And in that period, the leaders of the LGBT statewide group agreed that in order to get their bill passed, they had to drop trans people. And we were dropped and the, um, and we faced particularly the opposition, opposition of Kathy Brennan, of whom you may have heard, one of the leading trans exclusionary radical feminists. Um, and there was a lot of bitterness and anger. Um, so in this period, various things are happening. One, I'm active at the state level. We start, we have some success on the city bill. We start getting people to say they'll sponsor it. We're getting endorsements from, we got, oh, working with Pride at Work with Miriam Frank and Desmond Holcomb and some other people in, in Pride at Work. We got the New York City Central Labor Council to endorse our bill. Uh, that she did most of that work. Uh, that is, she, Desmond Holcomb, particularly. Um, and so we had successes there. I became increasingly concerned about the direction of gender PAC. Um, at first, it, you know, my concerns were a little bit tenuous. They were most, and I, you know, I didn't like to f focus objections on, or my concerns on um, uh personalities. But there was an issue with Ricky Wilchins. Um, you know, she was an excellent provocateur. She could, you know, she could give the speech that got everybody to take notice. And, you know, and she had been active in the transsexual menace years before. Um, you know, she was very in your face kind of person. Um, she was not the person you wanted to have lead an NGO with a permanent presence in Washington. She didn't have the administrative skills. In my view, she was too wrapped up in her own personality. Um, and, but most decisively, I was okay with her until about 2000. I think it was late 99 or 2000 when um, she brought this woman named Gina Reese aboard who was a lesbian activist in New Jersey 
who had led the state LGB anti-discrimination bill in the early 90s. Um, Gina was all for protecting trans people from discrimination, but she wanted to recast everything as not being about trans people, but being around a more diffuse idea of gender. That is, it, as it was put in some debates and I think in some articles, we, she wanted, and Ricky came to agree with her, that she wanted Gender Pact to be the organization that, argue, that advocated not only for transgender people, but also for the anorexic cheerleader who starves herself for body image, the football, male football player who gets slapped for, for crying after a tough loss, etc. And I mean, I sympathize with that, but I also the way that I understand social change and advocacy, that is too tenuous a basis to organize around uh, in some any coherent way. You need people who have a really unifying common experience. Trans people have that. That broader concept in my view, first of all, the anorexic cheerleader probably can join now or a feminist consciousness raising group and doesn't need to associate with trans people. The guy who gets slapped after a tough football game, maybe he can choose another sport. Um, you know, there are alternatives for people who are not gender different. And I, you know, I was very clear that Ricky was on the wrong path. In the late fall of 2000, I resigned. Actually, yeah, take it back. There was a board meeting in the spring of 2000 where we were drawing up our new mission statement. And I wanted us to have a mission statement that stated that we were anchored in or accountable to the transgender community. Ricky would have none of that. She wanted us to be accountable to no one. Um, and it had this much more diffuse statement, did not want the word transgender in the mission statement. I argued vi vigorously against that. Um, and this shows part of my training, both as a union activist and as a socialist, because I'd been through many social, you know, I'd been several socialist groups in the course of my life. You know, so I, I was basically trained in verbal and ideological combat. So when, you know, she basically lined up all the votes and I was, you know, kind of alone on this, I stood up and said, I am perfectly willing to be a minority of one on this issue. I will not yield on this. Um, and I said, You're, this is the wrong direction. Uh, I then tried to be the best activist I could in the organization to give myself credence in it. That didn't really work because Ricky controlled the board and there was no rank and file. Um, you know, there, there, it was not really a membership organization. You could be a member of it, but that meant you got a newsletter or something. Um, so in the fall of 2000, I, f I felt that I had gotten as far as I could persuading people and that we, I needed to, to resign publicly, stating my reasons, and I did. Um, I was the only one who let, or maybe one other person did around the same time, although not, not in a single statement. But th a couple of months later, actually three more people left the board. I mean, that, that 
whether we're a trans organization or not, did resonate with a number of people. And, and so a bunch of people left the board. Um, and in 2000, 2001, um, so we have left the, the existing trans organization in Washington, which is technically in Washington, although Ricky didn't live there and so on. But I think they had a post office box or maybe they didn't have an office. They didn't have employees yet. Um, and so um, in what I did was I started going to gender conferences. I went to first event up in Boston and I went to Southern Comfort and so forth. And I really started talking it up. We need a new trans organization that is focused on the trans community. And we have to organize that from the bottom up. You know, no one is going to do that for us. And, you know, there were some false starts. I, you know, looked for various possible leaders. Um, I found, you know, there were some who were kind of interested but didn't want to commit. Um, there were others who were you know, looked like they maybe might be person difficult personalities of not like Ricky, but not necessarily. I didn't find immediately the person who I believed could do this. I did not believe that I was the person to do this for several reasons. One, because I am a socialist. I generally don't support major party candidates. Um, I'm far to the left of most of my community. Um, and um, so, and also, you know, I mean, I, I had actually already been involved in advocacy with, with state legislatures. And I found that basically I didn't like politicians. I was not the right person to talk to politicians. Um, I was the kind of person who at certain critical junctures actually did say no said that wait i mean i did say that said i said the no on the gender prep board but didn't stop the train there was another case which actually happened a good deal later in the episcopal church which i'm also an activist in um but that should not detain us now it's it's a, a small part of a large canvas um so anyway i thought i'm not the right person i'm not tactful you know i'm willing i'm you know i was willing to tell um, politicians and members of the clergy that they were they were wrong and that they were I mean at least imply that they were morally deficient um, I know that Deborah Glick the uh, assembly person from lower Manhattan who we approached about the New York state bill a group of us went to her office and argued with her and I as usual took the hardest point line and she threw us out she told us to leave. Um, she was really mad. Um, and I also, uh, at one point, my assignment was to get clergy support for the city bill. Uh, and I actually did a fine job with that. I mean, if I do say so myself. When I was handed the assignment, there, was, there were 10 clergy and one congregation had signed on. When I finished three months later, we had 80, 80 clergy and 10 congregations signed on to the New York bill. Um, I actually developed a fair amount of skill about talking to, at talking to clergy. 
Um, and uh, that became one of my my assignments within Niagara. And later, we, I also in two thousand. Niagara was really founded by seven people, including me. Uh, but the key founders were, I was not one of, the key founders were Pauline Park and Paisley Curra. Um, and I have to give them full credit for that. I was a strong activist, but I wasn't the key leader. In New Jersey, I sent out the first emails to, to some trans people I knew in New Jersey and said, we need a New Jersey version of Niagara. Um, are you interested? I got five or six people aboard. We settled on a name, the Gender Rights Advocacy Association of New Jersey, because we could pronounce it Grange, which <clears throat> as a sidelight, the Grange in the 19th century was an agricultural protest movement. So it sort of warmed my socialist heart. And so we became Grange, and we, we fought for six years to get a state law to ban discrimination against trans people. At the very beginning of that process, a trans woman named Carla Enriquez, who was a doctor in South Jersey, had been fired from her practice uh, when she came out as trans. Um, and she had gone to court. And just as we were gearing up, the state Supreme Court ruled in her favor and said, uh, this is illegal under sex discrimination or something. So we, we, we come to a crisis. Have we, should we, you know, is our mission done before we've organized? Do we need to disband? And I consulted around with people, including Lisa Mote at the National Gay and Lesbian Task Force at the time. And we came to the conclusion that no, that even though we had a court decision, we still needed a stat statute law if we could get it. And we fought for six years to get it, and we did get it. It passed in 2006. Uh, I was always be really proud of that. That you know, it was grassroots work. It was the kind of organization that I love and that often tends to be fairly ephemeral, which is all volunteers. There are no paid officers. There's no staff. There is uh, no money. There are just five or six people who get together and do things. And that was Grange for most of its life. Um, and so we, we got a law in New Jersey. Me, but coming back to 2001, 2003, I'm looking for the person to head the national group. In 2000 or 2001, I can't remember which, I went to a lobby day and there was this other trans woman in the group and was sort of preparing for our interviews with our legislators. And her name was Mara Kiesling. And... Um, I talked to her and, you know, I talked to her about the need for, for an organization. At this, that point, I really hadn't quite thought that she was the one, although it turned out that she was the one. Um, but, you know, it was very interesting is how, how we explored each other. She came to understand that I'm a street activist, that I'm, you know, I'm a labor activist, I'm a rowdy. Um, she, her background is quite different. Her, her, she was, I mean, she's a person of conscience, absolutely. Um, during, when I, at the time that I came to know her, she had a small nonprofit practice of doing focus groups to show uh, groups that needed uh, help from the state. She was a lived in Pennsylvania um, 
how how to um, focus groups to show them how to pitch themselves best to get um, persuade legislators and so forth. But she she's like a polling and and focus group person. Her father was chief of staff to two different governors of Pennsylvania, uh, the Scranton and the elder Casey. Um, she had run for state house of representatives herself, or she had run a, I don't know, maybe she should just run a campaign for somebody else, but she was deeply involved in, 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 in normal electoral politics. She knew how that worked. She's tactful. She doesn't dislike politicians. Um, between 2001 and 2003, um, Amara was also interested in talking to me because she found that I had something that, I don't know, she may have had some of, but a lot of people didn't, was I had an understanding of how social movements work and what drives them and what keeps them going. And I talked to her at length. I mean, one time she, you know, she lived in Harrisburg. She came up and had lunch with me on the west side of Manhattan. Well, you know, on a work day when I was working. And um, I guess before I was working because we didn't work early in the morning. But anyway, um, you know, we had this conversation about how to do this. And we kind of both fertilized each other's minds about making this happen. Um, so Lisa and I and Mara had this three-way conversation that went on for a year or so. In 2002, at the end of the, what was then called the True Spirit Conference, the Trans Men's Conference, um, that was the last one because the, the guys got snowed in and some of them got rowdy and they broke up the place. Uh, that was a famous story. But anyway, the, the day that that adjourned, Mara and Lisa and I had lunch at a nearby restaurant and we talked again and we said, and we, I think we all came to agreement there needed to be a trans organization that would be the NGO in Washington that would be the one that we wanted as our sort of national public spokes thing. And Mara at that point, I have to give her huge credit for this. Basically, she closed up her professional practice. She moved to Washington. She started recruiting a board. Um, she found people to support it. Initially, she was the only employee. The actual launch was in 2003, but actually it had been, she had been doing the work for another a year previous to that. Um, and you know, it was launched as this extremely delicate fledgling NGO with Mara as the only staff person. Um, and Mara was the right person because she's not as confrontational as I am. But her task was essentially to break into NGO world and say, hey, wait a minute, trans people aren't at the table. The organizations that tell you that they do represent trans people don't. Uh, and that was a, actually aimed as much at HRC as it was at Gender Pack. Um, in, the rest is history, essentially. In, in the course of the next three to five years, NCT, I was on its board. What, what does that stand for? The National Center for Transgender Equality was the, yes, it was the organization that Mara founded. 
uh, but I was on the I was a founding member of the board of directors, um, and was somebody who kept being involved in and around it. I also had on a parallel track. I was also the first trans member of the executive board of Private Work. I was brought on there in two thousand two, and I was successfully the first trans member of the board, first trans member of the executive committee, first trans employee. First trans president. And you mentioned Pride at Work before, but could yes, you okay. Pride at Work is the LGBT was. constituency group of the labor movement. Constituency groups were founded by the labor movement in the middle 1970s when it became abundantly clear that the labor movement could not present itself to America as representative if its leadership was all male, all white male. And so the Coalition of Labor Union Women was founded, I think it was founded independently and later was brought on. The A. Philip Randolph Institute, which I think already existed, became more and more the spokesperson for African-American people, and separately the Coalition of Black Trade Unionists. The, the, there are two black groups in the, among the constituency groups. Later was founded the, Labor, the Latin, Labor Committee for Latin American Advancement, the Asian Pacific American Labor Alliance, Pride at Work was the last. It was founded actually, I believe in the late 80s, as a coalition of local labor LGB mostly groups uh, in various cities, Boston, New York, San Francisco, and Seattle, and some other places. Um, it, the, it organized it grew on an informal basis. In the late 90s, the AFLs took it on as the, as the latest and, and actually last added constituency group. Um, and that meant that we got office space in the headquarters. We got a, a grant every year. Uh, we could hire staff. Um, we advocated within the labor movement for LGBT inclusion. We did education about LGBT inclusion, which was increasingly important. Um, by, the by the middle 2003, 4, 5 period, I think we were already found finding that, they got, that, the, that we got fewer call-ins from gay and lesbian people who were having trouble in their unions and more call-ins from unions who were saying, we've got this person coming out as trans. What do we do? Um, and we had to educate them. And we did. Um, and part of my time as staff, I was technically communications director, a job which I actually, although it seemed like a natural fit, wasn't particularly because a copy editor is a quality control person. A communications director is really a creative and sales person. I did it, but it wasn't my favorite thing. My favorite thing was education. And so I did a lot of that education work with Pride at Work. Um, and, you know, and so I moved up the ladder. I held every position in the hierarchy. Um, I'm now back on the board as just an ordinary member. Um, so going back to NCTE, uh, that's launched in 2003. And over the next three or four years, uh, and this may sound a little sharp-elbowed, but basically NCTE displaced gender pack. Um, it also fended off an attack by what be, or a, a, a competition by a group that called the National Transgender Advocacy Coalition, or NTAC, um, which were, they were good people, but they were kind of amateur. 
um, in my view. Um, I mean, some of these are people I really like, so I don't want to, you know, be offensive, but they didn't have the, didn't seem to have the capacity, you know, to hire an executive director, open an office, raise money, have a board. I mean, they did have a board, but it's all volunteer. Uh, and, um, you know, they were rightly so, actually, they were more suspicious of, it, of HRC than we were. And actually, some of the things they said about HRC turned out to be true. Um, but they were just, they were not going to be the group that we needed. Um, and eventually, they, they faded out of the picture because if you want to be present in Washington, you have to be present in Washington 365 a year. And you, gotta, you, you have to have policy experts who can actually go and talk to, to bureaucrats about changing policies, about writing laws, etc., and so forth. And Mara was able to put that together. Um, NCTE is now 14 years old, I think, uh, and going strong. It's actually one of the few LGBT organizations that's still growing. Many of them are shrinking. Some of them, as we know, have disbanded. Um, in some cases, too soon, like here in New York. Um, so I stayed on the board with NCTE. Eventually I dropped off. I had, you know, too much to do. Um, and, but I always stayed connected with that. Um, and, you know, there's another kind of way that, you know, things move in sort of these curving waves in your life. So from the late nineties until 2000 six maybe um most of my activism was lgbt i did a little labor activism but not much starting around 2008-9 after the the financial crisis i began to shift back to labor i was not only active with pride at work became active with the labor campaign for single payer um you know um you know, uh, be more active around labor notes um, and so on. What is labor notes? Okay, labor notes is a left labor um, periodical. It's, a, it's like a monthly publication, labor from a left-wing perspective. It was founded by people who were in the, what group called the International Socialists in the early 1970s, although labor notes actually started in 1979. Um, as a way to bring a, it had to be independent of any particular union, could not be dependent on the money of union, of particular unions, had to speak in its own left voice and be critical of unions for not being, uh, not being movementy enough, not being struggle oriented enough, being, you know, being too, um, having too cozy a relationship with the employers they represent, you know, whose people they represent, you know, all of that stuff, all of the, the left critique of the labor movement has been expressed by Labor Notes as a publication and by the biennial conference that it organizes from 1979 to the present, which is 38 years, I think. Um, and in my view, it's, it's a 
project that I have identified with for, I mean, long, long ago. I went to the first conference. I've been to every conference but one. Um, and so that's a, that's a place, and there's been a sort of sweet way that those things have converged again. Like in, uh, you know, as I said, I compartmentalized my experience to some degree. Um, and I, um, at, at, for a while, you know, I would either be doing labor work or LGBT work, but not, the two didn't necessarily meld. Um, in, um, sometime in, I don't know, between 2005 and the present, I was asked to write articles, Steward's Corner articles, which are little advice things in neighbor notes about LGBT workers, about domestic partner benefits, about trans workers. And so I wrote a number of those. Some of them are, are you know, they were, they were all published and I think some of them were in, in the Troublemakers Handbooks, which is a, you know, a book form that Labor Notes publishes. Um, so that was a, a really good way of reintegrating my activism. Um, I'm now 20 years post-transition. Um, I still identify strongly with the trans movement. Uh, as I was saying at the beginning of this interview, the difference that there is now for young trans people to come out and survive is between now and 10 years ago and certainly the, the 20 is dramatic. Um, you know, there's, for example, you don't have to, ex when I came out, I was one, my therapist told me that I was one of the very few people who was among her clients who kept her the jobs. Uh, I kept my job. I wasn't fired by the New York times and I kept it and I retired from the New York times. Um, and, you know, along the way, various people came out. Some of them had a really hard time. Um, and, you know, there was a suicide. There was a, someone who had been a sports journalist in L.A. who came out and uh, basically was rejected by their family. And, yeah, anyway, it was a bad story. And, and that kind of thing happened. Now you get you families are supportive more. Families are supportive of young children that are trans, um, which is so wonderful. I mean, those kids get a chance to really grow up as their real selves, which is something that we can wish them abundant success with. But it's you know, and in a way, there's a sad part too because our generation didn't have that chance. Um, so, but I mean, I wouldn't change this for the world. I mean, that, I mean, I guess I would change it for the better if it was possible, but it's not, can't change the past. But, um, you know, uh, I mean, I remember when, when Lana Wachowski came out and then Lana Wachowski's brother came out and, um, you know, um, uh, Orange is the New Black um, and... Janet Mock, and, um, you know, actually some of these things I've never seen because I don't, I haven't had streaming TV yet, but I may yet see them. Anyway, um, trans has grown in the popular consciousness. You know, there was Trans America, not the greatest film in the world, but it was decent. 
um, you know, and it, you know, and there are other films there, you know, it was Susan Stryker's wonderful documentary, Screaming Queens, um, you know, which showed another part of history that, you know, that we, most people don't know. Um, I watch that every year or two. I watch The Crying Game every year or two. You know, it, that's a movie that's somewhat controversial among trans people, but yet it's one that I find deeply touching. Um, and so anyway, I'm off on a tangent here, but, uh, you know, the, the world has changed greatly for the better. However, and you got to put a however on this, it is also true that in the, in the, in the America of President Trump, trans people are among the number one targets. Um, you know, there are, you know, dozens of bathroom bills were introduced around the country. None of them passed. Some of them came close. Um, we stopped the one in Texas, which was probably the most dangerous one. But we, the information is that it will be back in another year or two. And the Speaker of the Texas House who stopped it because he's a business-oriented Republican, he didn't run for re-election, or he's not going to. So again, we don't know what's going to happen. We don't know whether we have the we influence to stop that. We may. Things get better. Um, you know, there are. Um, you know, the, the, I mean, this this kind of threat is going to pop up everywhere. They're rescinding all kinds of games we've made at the federal level. I am convinced. I don't know if I'm absolutely convinced. No, not quite. I wouldn't put it that way. But I am op strongly optimistic that Trump is going to prove ephemeral. Um, I think um, the Republicans have lost three consecutive statewide elections since Trump's election. Um, they lost heavily in legislative elections in Virginia. Um, they're going to see that this stuff is a liability. That doesn't stop them because they're actually more loyal to their, their base than they are in some ways to, to the press. You know, they, they're less interested in becoming mainstream again than they are in cultivating their base over and over and over again, uh, whether it's on global warming trans rights, um, you name it, women's rights, you know, all of these things, they're going to fight. But uh, I think, you know, I would hope that in, see, 2020 is three years, that by that time, some of the things that have been rescinded will be reversed again. We may win some stuff in the courts, although the, the, they've managed to pack the courts with right-wing people. But um, I am still an optimist about struggle. I still believe that it is our only hope. Um, you have any other questions? Uh, I have dozens of questions. Yes. Uh, they've built up throughout our conversation, but I'm. Um, this was absolutely magnificent. It was really Thank so lo lovely to listen to you. Um, Thank you. And I'm aware that you need to head out before too long. Uh, let me right? let me text Andy and see what she's expecting, and Shall where we... she's.
take a break and then if there's time reconvene uh let me see um i she lives in brooklyn and i need if, if i'm going to see her today yeah i think i need to leave in the next 20 40 to 30 minutes okay. but we'll see it i mean i have to find out what again her subway stop and so on so i'm going to pause it so we and we might if okay so um, let's uh, go back to the early part of your story. Um, yes. So uh, what you described your parents a little bit yeah. in their sort of uneven support and mm -hmm. uh, ultimate hostility. Um, what what did your parents do? What was their what were their jobs? Okay. Um, my father was the chief editor of the Hammond Map Company mm -hmm. from 1948 to 1988. Hammond Map Company. Okay, yes. yeah, I've seen I've yes. seen that name on maps. Yes, okay. So it's it was at that time it was the second largest map publisher in the United States, I believe. Largest being Rand McNally. Um so he was he had gotten that job very young. He was in his twenties. Mm -hmm. Um and he ran the editorial department for forty years, just about. Uh, they retired. My parents, my mother was a, uh, trained as a teacher. Um, my mother and my father both came from what I would call middle class com um, families that were under great strain from the Depression. My mother's father was a high school teacher. He kept his job, but he had... Um, he worked in Union City, New Jersey. He was a, a vice principal, a teacher and a vice principal in one of the high schools there. And they had three consecutive 10% pay cuts. Um, my mother said that during um, the Depression, um, her mother, my grandmother, made all the clothes that they wore. She made them out of yard goods. Um, and they were... You know, because they, my grandmother particularly was from a rural background and had a certain self-sufficiency, you know, that they had. Um, so they were middle class, but they, they had, um, they didn't have much money. Um, my father um, had a very rocky childhood that involved uh, a, a divorce. His mother and father were divorced when he was an infant and... His, he grew up in his grandparents' house with his mother as a, as he put it, an almost a, a like an older sibling. Um, raised by the grandparents, his mother became ill. She had tuberculosis. She died when my father was nine. She was 34. Um, and he was then, you know, his, then his grandfather lost all his money in the bank failures, uh, died of a heart attack. His mother, his grandmother eventually was the sole surviving parent. She lived four more years and she died. He wound up with cousins. It was a really rocky, difficult childhood. Um, he, he went to State Teachers College because, the, you know, nobody in his family had any money, as did my... my Which state? In, Mont, in Montclair State and also in, in New Jersey. Yeah. They were both at Montclair State. That's where they met. Um, they... And this, you know, this is important, actually, and interesting because of the recent debate about universal college, free college for everyone. 
some people, such as Hillary Clinton, have said, no, 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 it's impossible. But actually, I know that in the 1940s, New Jersey educated people free to be teachers because they needed teachers. Um, and so my mother and my father were in the dorms. I believe that the dorm room and board was either free or virtually free. Tuition was either free or virtually free. Um, they came out of that. They, you know, my mother worked as a teacher for a year and a half during the, during the war. And then um, when my, she became pregnant with my brother, um, the convention at the time was that a woman who was visibly pregnant had to leave the workforce. And that's what happened. She left the workforce. My brother was born in 1945. I was born the next, next year. My mother's, um, for 14 years, uh, was a homemaker who was tasked with raising children, as had, had, as had been her mother, who was also a trained teacher, um, who worked in a war plant during the war, but who, you know, who stayed home most of the time. Um, so we were middle class in that sense. We lived in my mother's hometown at first, which was what I would call lower middle class and maybe somewhat working class. Um, and then we lived in Maplewood where the company was, where Hammond was located. And in Maplewood, we actually, you know, we, we were more prosperous than we had. Um, we went from a two bedroom house in Woodridge to a four bedroom house in Maplewood um, with a substantial lot. My, my, uh, my mother went back to work in 1960 when, my brother, when I was 14 and my brother was 15. We were, as they put it, old enough to be trusted not to burn the house down. So um, they were well off in many ways, but there, you, there were limits on that. First of all, you know, and, and this actually was probably quite common in New Jersey in the 50s and 60s, nobody even thought of the possibility of private school. That wasn't even on the, on the radar. When my brother and I were 15 or 16, the, my parents sat us down at the table and said, um, you're gonna go, we want you to go to college. Um, we want you to go to as good a college as you can, but no matter how good your grades are, you can't go to Ivy League because we don't have the money. Um, their view of the money is more conservative perhaps than has become customary since. There wasn't such a thing as $100,000 in student debt in those days. Um, there wasn't, um, everything cost less, but everybody assumed that they could, you know, or at least my parents assumed that they did not have enough money to send us to Columbia even if we could get in. Um, so we were told that we had to aim for second tier co colleges, which we did. I got into Johns Hopkins. My brother got into Lehigh. Um, and that was our middle classness. Um, in the more Marxian sense of the word, we were middle class because my father was a manager and my mother was a supervisor uh, when she went back to work. Um, she didn't go back to teaching. But, you know, she was a supervising editor. And so that, you know, we lived in Maplewood where there were two country clubs. We didn't belong to either of them. Um, we were not comfortable with country club people. Um, we were very middle. 
in that sense. Um, and so I went, you know, so that's, that's the nature of my family. So your next question. Um, so you told the story about seeing uh, the news article about Kristen Jorgensen. Yes. Uh, can you, do you remember any more details from that day? Um, no. Besides. Unfortunately, I'm sorry. I wish I did, but I was seven years old. Yeah. And I can't remember other than, I, I forget, you know, I don't even remember for sure whether my father came in carrying that, um, that daily news that said GI becomes blonde bombshell or whatever it said, you know, something like that. Um, I know that, that that was the headlines. I know that it was discussed. I know that I was discouraged, but I, you know, I don't remember the details of it. I'm sorry. When did you um, reconstruct that story then? If, if, uh, I knew that it was it? there. Yep. I mean, I remember, I had that member, memory that the Christine Jorgensen had been discussed in the family and it was looked on with fisheye, you know. Yeah. You know, it was like very eccentric, to put it mildly. And so that was one thing. Another thing was, some, you know, sometimes when I was young, um, I raided my mother's underwear drawer and I was betrayed by my brother. And I was told, you know, and I was, you know, they didn't beat me. They didn't use physical punish, punishment, but they ridiculed me for it. Uh, and I, I remember that too. Okay, so it was conveyed that feminine behavior or feminine, um, you know, it, it, any symbols of femininity were not the right thing for a boy. And so that's basically how I learned the limits of, of gender expression for me. And as someone who soon after leaving uh, New Jersey got involved in core, yeah. um, were was your uh, the places you lived in New Jersey were they all white or were they segregated or did you come into contact with black people growing up? Okay, um, it, it depends on which. Although the answer is toward the segregated end yeah. in Woodridge, where I where I lived, that was my mother's hometown, lower middle class or working class. Uh, was 100% white. There were no, at least, and, you know, I don't know for absolute sure. I haven't seen the census numbers on it, but um, everybody said there are no black people in this town. It was, and racism was apparent because kids, uh, 10, 11, 12 year old kids on the street would call each other the N word as a way of putting each other down, even though there were no, there were no black people in sight. Um, so there, you know, there was a kind of, cultural racism that was present. So that was Woodridge. We moved to Maplewood. Uh, in Maplewood, there was a very small black section, and there was also a very small black section in South Orange, the neighboring town that shared our high school. Um, and so in my graduating class, senior graduating class in 1964, I would estimate that the senior class was 97 or 98% white. Um, there was a Maplewood South a Maplewood Fair Housing Council in this again in that summer between high school and college. I contacted them and I said I'd like to circulate your petitions and I did, although I think I only wound up getting two or three. Um, so there was some consciousness of how segregated the place was. Um, we also knew that you know we we were 
you know, three to five miles from Newark, which was a majority black city by then, or at least by six, yeah, by 64 was. Um, and, you know, uh, contact between kids in my school, my high school, and black kids was only at sporting events. For example, um, our football team played a number of, of similarly sized high schools, some of which were majority black. Um, our basketball team, which was very good in my senior year, um, was eliminated in the semifinals of the state championship by Newark Central. Um, so, uh, and you know, I remember being at that game and uh, you know, there are bleachers on both sides of the basketball court and the bleachers on my team's side were all white and the bleachers on the other, Newark Central side were all black. It was that segregated. So I was aware of segregation uh, now, here's something you might be interested in. You know, since there was actually I had little on the ground experience of, I mean, except for the racism that I heard. And, you know, I mean, I remember, I think my parents heard kids using that. when At some point they t told me and my brother, you are not to talk like that. Um, and that was also part of I think that was partly because they thought that racism was wrong, but also because they thought it was uncouth. Um, it's a little anecdote, which is sort of off to the side, but it's very illustrative. Uh, when I was 11 or 12, my brother and I had bicycles, and we used them to ride all over town. Um, we had a steep driveway in, my, in our house. This was in Woodridge before we moved. Um, and... I used to go take my bike and ride down that steep driveway and go out onto the street, having built up a lot of speed and ride up the hill. Um, I always kept an eye out for cars coming up the hill. There was, there was nowhere near as much car traffic in those days as you get used to now. But one day I did that. I rode down the hill. I saw there was a car coming. I knew I had the distance to beat it and I could get out there. But as I came up the hill, the car did, the guy did blow his horn. I stopped um, on, standing on my bike with my bike, and as he drove past, I thumbed my nose at him. Uh, as I was about to get back on my bike and start to ride away, my mother called me from the front door of our house, said, come here. Uh, so I, I didn't know what she wanted, so I walked up to the front of the house. And um, instead of saying anything, and this was very unusual in our family, um, she opened the door with one hand she grabbed the front of my shirt and with the, her right hand she slapped me as hard as she could and said that you were never to do that again um, I, by the time I was 12 it was very rare for us to be struck by our parents probably almost never uh, but they were that concerned about being you know, good mannered so part of that probably accounted for the fact that they were um, disapproved of overt expressions of racism. But in the, from 1961 to 64, when I was in high school, um, that was at the, the height of the Martin Luther King Southern Christian Leadership Conference um, phase of the Civil Rights Movement. 
that was when you know that was Selma, that was Birmingham, that was the whole thing. Um, and my parents, who actually rarely expressed opinions about it, they were a bit uncomfortable with any kind of unrest, which also seemed to be uncouth. Um, but they rarely said very much about it. They, they, you know, you, I was debating. I had a friend in high school who was an extremely conservative guy who became a John Birch Society member or something. But and we pushed ourselves, pushed each other, him to the right and me to the left. So I would, you know, sometimes ask my parents, and they kind of express unease about it. But I remember this one time, spring of 1963. This is the the a series of incidents that's often referred to as the children of Birmingham, when when the children poured out of the high schools to demonstrate against segregation in, in Birmingham. And uh, they were met by fire hoses and dogs. And I remember we watched that on television before at dinner. And when we sat down at dinner, um, my father, who rarely ex was, was, you know, he, was all, he had that kind of cool that was common in the 50s and early 60s, rarely expressed a vehement opinion about anything. He said, the way they treat those people is disgraceful. It should not be, you know, they should stop that. They should, you know, they should crack down on that. I think this is, yeah, this is around the time that they had sent troops in to get James Meredith into the University of Mississippi. And I think he was uh, getting, uh, you know, his cool was becoming exhausted. Um, so that was the spring. The summer was the March on Washington. Some of my high school classmates went. I didn't because I, at that time, could not conceive of doing anything that involved my being more than half a mile from my parents. You know, we all, we, we were very close in part, par close-knit family, we did everything together. So if they weren't going on the march, I wasn't going on the march. When, I, when high school started uh, in September, uh, and this, uh, the school paper, they, they had already sort of covered it. Some of the kids had, I guess, come in and, during the summer and covered the people going to the march. And I, you know, I felt kind of embarrassed that I hadn't gone. Um, two weeks after I started my senior year, was Birmingham Sunday when the 16th Street Baptist Church was blown up and, and four little girls were killed. Um, I remember how deeply angered I was by that. And, you know, um, and also, I mean, it was noted at the time that the tone changed um, in the civil rights movement. You know, I mean, there had been a lot of the you know, <clears throat> I have a dream, you know, the black children, white children, you know, and it's a good dream. But, you know, it tended to be a very feel goody kind of stuff. After Birmingham Sunday, I remember hearing uh, <clears throat> black uh, activists shouting with anger, four little girls, you know, I was just, it was unbelievable. Um, <clears throat> yeah, it was pretty intense. Um, so that happened. Kennedy was assassinated in November of 63. Um, in the spring of 1964, um, there, the, in Maplewood in the neighboring town, there was a, a weekly newspaper that just covered the local happenings. 
there was a short article at the bottom of the page that said the two students who had graduated from my high school uh, in 1963, who were in my brother's class, and who had been away at college, the two guys had volunteered to go to Mississippi for Freedom Summer. These were people I knew. Uh, and then I, I went to the Democratic Convention, as we already discussed. So my introduction, you know, is I went from a situation where, or a, a, a viewpoint where um, the civil rights movement was something I watched on television, and it became something that more and more involved people I knew and that I got drawn to. Um, you know, I'll have to tell you that this was a awkward and difficult transition. You know, I had been essentially raised in all-white company. When I got to Baltimore, um, I wasn't the most comfortable person in the world around black people. You know, I, I, you know, and of course, I also had this other thing going on in me that made me guarded with people. And sometimes people took that as aloofness. Um, you know, um, After I transitioned, and this is a long flashback ahead, but it tells you something about it. There was a guy I knew who had been a business agent for one of the newspaper unions when I was active in the 90s. He knew me. We worked together. He's a lefty. I was a lefty and so on. And then I, you know, I transitioned. I was out of the labor scene for a while. Sometime, you know, maybe 10 years later, as a labor notes conference, he was there. And he said, you know... This has really been very, you know, I was already out as Donna. I was there as Donna. I was in, you know, in my days of my Femiist presentation, you know, because I was still working. Um, and he said, this has been so good for you. He said, I knew Don, Don rarely smiled. But Donna smiles all the time. Um, and my friends Dan and Sherry just told me basically the same thing, that I was when I visited with them in the late 80s, I was visibly uncomfortable about something. And as I went through transition, I became less uncomfortable. So anyway, that, you know, that's a long tangent from my experience with racism. But, um, you know, racism became, became something that I really wanted to fight. And, you know, I was arrested four times. Uh, yeah, three, four, you know, and I was... Um, at the time of the Selma March in 1965, I was still a freshman in college living in the dorms. And again, I didn't feel quite independent enough to go down to Alabama on my own. But the Baltimore Friends of SNCC organized a support march. Uh, and we marched from Baltimore to Washington, which is 40 miles. Um, we marched all day, carrying signs saying we support Selma, you know, civil rights in Selma. And I remember as the cars went past us, some, some of them blew their, blew their horns to support us. Um, yeah, you know, that was a good feeling. And, you know, um, so there were things we did, um, you know, uh, so I guess I'm not quite sure where I'm going with this, but essentially, you you know, 
learning to be an activist and learning to be around people who are different than you are, those are all educations. You have to learn them as best you can. How did you get recruited in the court to, for the uh, arrests that you did in civil disobedience in Baltimore? I think I just said, you know, to the SDS people, uh, you know, who were actually on camp. CORE wasn't organized on the Hopkins campus. The Hopkins student body must have been 100% white. Um, I am not sure if they actually refused black applicants, but I don't remember any black people. It was also a men's school. In my sophomore year, there was one woman who was given, I, given permission to attend lectures because they had something that she needed. And I remember this one poor young woman sitting in a lecture hall of 200 men. You know, and she's so isolated. It was like, Hopkins began admitting women in 1971, but that's another story. Um, so anyway, with core, yeah, I mean, I found out when, the, when these things were and I went, uh, and I, and I went and I got arrested and did the thing. Um, I did, it was actually, I had easier relationships with the older black men who were leading it. Um, Walter Carter and Jim Griffin, Griffin, um, were the two, you know, the t Walter Carter was the big leader of Baltimore Corps. Jim Griffin was the guy, the guy on the ground who got the things done. Uh, I, I, I liked them both and they liked me. Um, so I guess that's as best I can answer that question. And what was your involvement with SDS like for your first, while you were at John Hopkins? It, was, it opened a world to me. Uh, you know, I had been, in high school, the range of permissible expression, or I don't know, you know, it's not like you got told you couldn't, but the socially acceptable range of political opinion ran from fairly hard right Republican to, to fairly liberal, although not very liberal, Democratic. There was nothing out there left of that, uh, or very little. There were some kids who sympathized with the Cuban government, um, you know, and they spoke up. We had a club. Uh, one of the extracurricular clubs, which was the uh, politics and government club. In my senior year, I was vice president of the club. Um, and uh, one of the younger members was Miriam Frank. She and I went to high school together. Uh, the guy who's, who in her class who succeeded me as vice president of that club was Mark Rudd, um, you know, later of SDS and the Weathermen. So there were clearly other kids around there who were, you know, kind of moving in that direction. But it didn't get expressed a lot in the high school. You know, there was still a very, fairly constricted. When I got to college, I mean, it was so different. I mean, when I went to SDS meetings. Uh, the free speech movement in Berkeley was at its height. We had one of our members at Hopkins was from Berkeley. He had been out there. He came back, he reported, it was, you know, again, a big, interesting, exciting thing. Um, and uh, I, you know, I was thrilled by that. We talked about 
the civil rights movement and about the the inadequate response of the mainstream liberal political establishment. We all agreed on that. You know, we all agreed about the MFDP challenge, and we all agreed um, that the federal government was not doing enough to suppress the Klan. And, you know, so that, that was like the common currency. Then people started talking about the war. Uh, did I mention during, during our uh, on mic thing that I was both in the SDS and the ROTC yes, at the same time? Yes. So, I mean, I had a mixed consciousness about this. Um, I remember I went to... I went to ROTC class once. Um, I, you know, usually you went in civilian clothes. And I went, I had my snick button, on, uh, you know, on my collar. And I went there and I noticed, you know, some people sort of sort of laughing a little bit. I wondered, you know, maybe it's a little out of place. I don't know. And I took it off. Um, but... I started to see that there was a contradiction between being in the army and being not only against the war, but being in any social justice movement. It seemed to be, you know, there wasn't a hard line, but there was a pretty clear soft line. Um, and so, and, you know, my colleagues in SDS had been talking about Vietnam and, you know, oh, this is another just, seminal event in my life uh, in February 1965 um, there was a anti-war rally in Washington at a church it may have been Founder United Methodist but it was one of those liberal churches and some of us from we publicized some of us from SDS were going to go down we got our cars to we, some of us had cars not me but we had got cars together uh to leave from a parking lot near the student union and the sd the rotc guys who were people i'd been with only a few months before some of them came out and tried to stop us some of them jumped on the hoods of our cars uh basically we you know uh some of the guys who were driving the cars figured out ways to knock them off the hood i mean not without injuring you know, nobody got run over, but basically we all got there. We went to Washington. The speaker at that event was I.F. Stone, um, who was brilliant. Um, he, he was really powerful. Um, and, you know, I began to understand that the United States government was not a force for good in the world. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, that, that year... I went from a Cold War liberal with, with civil rights sympathies to a self-described radical. Um, the next year, uh, and again, I was still in SDS, and our, uh, Kim Moody was one of the leaders of my chapter, along with Peter Davidovich. Um, they were like the old, older, uh, near adults. You know, they, I mean, actually, they were in their early 20s. Um, but they seem so much older than the rest of us. Anyway, so they were talking, they were talking to us about socialism and revolution and stuff. And it was all really, really interesting. Much, much more. I did okay in my first year in college. I got an A in history in my first semester. And I had a like a B plus average, I think, by my end of the first year. 
I started to go downhill in the second year. I was not interested in what they had to teach. Uh, I was much more interested in what I was learning as an activist. So, um, you know, they, Peter and Kim and some of the others, you know, began talking about socialism, about, you know, a different way of organizing society, about the, the importance of the working class. Um, well, fairly new concepts to me. Um, although I, I kind of ate them up quickly because I had, to, I had to, you know, it didn't seem like conventional politics provided a route toward a really different society. So there was this one moment, I think pretty much, it probably was in the spring of my sophomore year, so either right before I was arrested in the anti-war, in the, you know, thing where I dropped out of school, or maybe right after, because I still hung around on the campus. But I was in the student union, and I was talking to, probably to Peter and Kim, and maybe to some other leaders of the chapter. And we were talking, uh, and I had sort of come far enough to realize, okay, if we need the working class to change the society, how do we do this? We were all college students. You know, n none of us, or very, very few of us, were from working class backgrounds, at least as that was understood then, as you know, what, what, what we would now call blue collar. Um, and so I said, how do we make cross that divide? And uh, one of them said, you know, we need to organize a socialist organization and that organization needs to get people to go and take jobs in industry either broadly or narrowly defined, depending on who was saying it. But you had to get people with socialist ideas into the workplace to talk about those ideas. I was already on the brink of dropping out of college. Um, and when they said that, for a moment, a glimpse of a different life appeared to me. And although the road to that different life was pretty rocky and actually led, led me back into a white collar job, but it, it certainly led me into um, intense uh, union struggle, um, I got there eventually. It took some time. Um, but that was, I mean, that was really one of the things that it was moving on a number of levels because it was convincing. That is, it was convincing people that working people could change, convincing that working people could change the world. They had the power, they could stop production, they had the numbers. Um, it was at least somewhat convincing that socialists could bring those ideas into the working class as, you know, have been, has been, tried in a hundred different ways and times in the last couple of hundred years. Um, and I still believe is true. Um, those were convinced, it was both convincing and it was something that appealed to my sense that you couldn't t just talk about this stuff, you had to do this stuff. Uh, and that meant, you know, I did apply for a number of industrial jobs, although I was at that time, my comrades, which I'm, I start to use that word in connection with these SDS people, because we were 
socialists, and that became the customary way of referring to other people. But anyway, my comrades were talking about getting into the working class, but their plan was much more long term. I was out, out of school, out of a job. I needed to do this soon. And I couldn't get a job in an industrial plant, because, partly because when I filled out the applications, I didn't realize that I should have lied about being a college student, former college student. I also didn't have any previous, you know, like some of my friends had like had jobs painting houses for the summer. If you, go, if you went to an industrial plant with that on your resume, they might hire you. If I said, I reshelled books in the library, they're not so likely to hire you. So I didn't get that kind of job. Um, but, you know, when I got, you know, uh, hired by this, you know, first by the Star Ledger and then by the Sun, the Sun was a union shop. And then I said, well, OK, you know, maybe this will be the, my way. And actually that I did put, you know, 25 years of my life into that. Um, and all of that came out of, I think, you know, SDS, which was, um, had many flaws, but which was, there was at least a current in it, which thought very seriously about social change and how to make it, um, and didn't like the, what we now see as the, you know, the mainstream version of social change, which is very top down. Yeah, no, we were not interested in that. I mean, it was top-downness that tended to offend us the most. So anyway, that's the way, that's kind of the path that I followed in, in that respect. Uh, you mentioned before, I want to get back to the yeah. socialist uh, participation yeah. in socialist yeah. work, but you mentioned before um, reading about the John Hopkins Gender Clinic. Yes. Um, and sort of keeping it at arm's length. Yes. Do you remember anything else around, were you ever exposed to the clinic or did you learn much about it while you were there? Or what was it like being at the same university as it? Well, actually you're, you're at the same university in the formal institutional sense, but at Johns Hopkins, the liberal arts campus, which is where most undergraduates are, is in North Central Baltimore um, it's just south of the wealthiest neighborhoods in the city. It's on the, those are all to the north and to the east, to the w west, there's a working class neighborhood, more white, and a, then to the east, there's a black working class neighborhood and, and so on. Um, so that campus was isolated from the medical campus. The medical campus is one in what's called East Baltimore, which is, had been in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, that was one of the premier white working class neighborhoods in the city. It, it started to have a major black se section in the 50s and 60s. Johns Hopkins Hospital was down there. It had actually been founded down there in, in East Baltimore in probably around 1900. You know, the university was founded in 1876. Um, and so the two campuses were separate. If there was that meta, you know, there if there was that clinic, but I never went there. I know it was never around it. The only possible sign, and I am not really sure about this. It could be other reasons, but 
I recall in the 70s, probably before they stopped the program in, in 1979, um, my job, as you know, kept me up late at night. I worked uh, my standard shift at the Sun, 4.30 in the afternoon to 1.30 in the morning. Uh, the bars closed at 2, so you couldn't even go out for drinks, really. You might go to a diner. Uh, or you just drove home. I and, and everybody drove to work and back because the buses, you know, there were no buses. That, well, there were some buses, but not enough that late. I noticed in my drives back and forth between my home and the Sun Building, which is not quite downtown, but much nearer downtown, there was a fairly large number of transsex workers out on the street. It's possible that some of them had come to Baltimore looking for the clinic and were looking to raise the money or had been rejected by the clinic but needed to be sort of around that world. I don't know. That, that's a conjecture on my part. Um, now, as I said, the clinic was in existence from 1965 to 1979. I left Baltimore in 1977. Um, they closed the clinic in 1979 because I think the clinic was a, a subdivision of a larger part of the medical unit, the medical college. Um, and the person who became in charge of the, the larger part was named Paul McHugh, M-C-H-U-G-H, McHugh, who um, was a devout Catholic who was very anti trans. Um, but they, what they did was they ran a study of trans women who had surgery and trans women who didn't have surgery but transitioned. Um, and they found that the satisfaction rate among those who had surgery was not markedly higher than among those who didn't have surgery but did transition. And they decided that therefore, and the logic of this is obviously shaky, they decided that the surgery part wasn't really necessary and that um, even though the, the, the satisfaction rates were all positive, more, many more people were satisfied than dissatisfied, um, for some reason they used that as an excuse to close the program. Hopkins was the first gender clinic to close, I believe, although I would have to ask somebody who's more knowledgeable about that. Um, and... Um, but after that, in the 80s, one by one, all of the gender clinics closed. Stanford, Case Western Reserve, I think there was one at Vanderbilt, um, and so on. They all closed, and this was at the time of the anti-trans backlash around Janice Raymond and the transsexual empire, you know, the book that she wrote that's... Uh, uh, it, it is so grotesquely anti-trans, it's painful to read. Um, but there was this anti-trans backlash that infected not only society generally, but also the LGBT movement particularly. That's some of the origin of lesbian anti-trans, the, the lesbian anti-trans current in the larger lesbian movement, if I might say. So... Um, that was that was a time of retreat for trans people. Trans people started to 
look for surgery if they wanted to get it and could somehow put together the money uh, on a fee-for-service, you know, instead of going to a clinic, which basically gave people free treatment if they conformed to the gender clinic's expectation of what a trans woman should be and look like. Um, you know, there are all kinds of horror stories about that. Um, but so if you just, if you go to a doctor money in hand and say, will you do this? Some people who had the money got, did get that done. Other people just had to wait. Um, bringing us back to my life and my, you know, how I ex sort of experienced from a distance those things that were going on. Um, as I thought about it later, um, I wouldn't say, I, I pr probably didn't fully understand myself in tr as trans in the 1970s. I knew I was sort of like that, but uh, you know, I didn't have the epiphany I mentioned until 1986. But supposing in 1986, that instead of concluding that I was too old, which really meant that I was too afraid, um, I had decided that I would do it. I am not convinced that if I had come out then that I would have survived. Um, and I mean that in the literal sense. Um, the mortality rate among, you know, I believe among uh, trans women who came out in that time, I don't know if I received comprehensive study, but I believe that they, there was some, some documentation of, of quite elevated mortality rates. Um, and that was because people uh, got AIDS, because they used too many drugs, um, because they committed suicide, or because somebody killed them. Um, and if I had come out in 1986, I do not believe I would have kept my job at the New York Times. And I don't know how I would have survived. Um, so what I've read of trans history, which is by now, you know, back I mentioned earlier in this interview that in 1997, 8, when I was coming out, there was trans history, but not very much. Now there's quite a bit if you, you know, if you know where to look for it, you know, there are archives, you know, and so on. And um, so, um, the, uh, you know, the, in the 1980s, it was very perilous time. Um, it was, it was dangerous, uh, and it was also like, even if you survived physically, um, you were stigmatized if people knew, um, or you dr were driven into hiding. I'll tell you an interesting story about that, and a story that is touching and poignant and sad and good at the same time. You may remember that in 2011, there was a trans woman who was in a fast food restaurant who was badly beaten in the Baltimore suburbs. Her name was... Uh, uh, Chrissy Polis, um, and it was the thing. The thing is that it was somebody recorded it on their cell phone camera, and the video went viral. Um, and you know, as these these two women attacked her and basically beat her quite badly, um, 
and there was a demonstration that was called this is 2011 so by this time you know there's you know we we hadn't really crossed the tipping point yet but there was a fair number of people who would turn out for something like this so there's big demonstration at the place i went a lot of people went um that i knew and when we got there we found a number of people who identified themselves to others in the crowd the, as trans women who had been in the closet for 10, 15, 20, 25, 30 years, who were so moved by this that they came out to demonstrate, um, and who lived these lives of isolation and denial, um, that, and that they had found the courage to come out and do this was wonderful. Um, but that is, you know, I think that was the kind of life that faced people who had to deny who they were. I mean, I'll tell you another story. I mean, this is maybe technically, um, you know, I, I mean, I'm, there are no names attached to it, so I will. There's like one of my therapists in one of our conversations, as I was making my decision to transition and come out, for a brief time, I entertained the idea that I would, uh, you know, go through as much transition as I could and still hide it. And then I would quit my job at the times and I would go through the rest of transition and save up the money to have my surgery. And then I would later come back under a different persona and work. And this is all actually, although I didn't quite understand it at the time, this was a way of hiding from being out. Um, and I remember that my therapist told me that, um, in her view, this would be a terrible mistake. Um, and she said this thing, I'll always remember. She said, you have just given up one life of lying and hiding why start another? Um, and she also told me an anecdote, and this is what I was slightly hesitant about, but I'm not going to name my therapist or the person she was, because I don't know the name of the person she described. She said she had a patient who was, was then, uh, as she said, a trans woman who passed very well, you know, who blended into society perfectly, um, you know, was you know, either blessed with a, you know, for being fairly small or, you know, light boned or, you know, it's all the things that help some trans women pass. And she said that that woman, although she bled, fit in, blended in perfectly, she said this woman is mentally on the brink. She is scared out of her mind that someone will know her secret even though actually no one would. And uh, there's this thing about, um, paradoxical thing that hiding makes you afraid. Um, and afraid that someone will know. Uh, that was very powerful and actually persuaded me that I shouldn't do that. Um, and it's the, you know, I've advised people along the road road that you know do not get back into a life of denial it's a terrible place to be
So I'm not sure how I got onto that, but I'm going to toss it back to you. Uh, so you mentioned um, uh, a number, your involvement uh, as a socialist and, yes. in, uh, as a socialist in the labor movement yes. and prior in SDS. Yeah. And, uh, and there are some hints about the sort of kind of socialist you were, yeah. and you described a little bit about your politics. Um, could you sketch some about the current of the socialist movement that you were a part of yes. and some of the organizations okay. you're involved in and so, the arc of that? When I was persuaded by my SDS mentors to be, to, to you know, to, to take up the idea of socialism and so forth, um, the socialist movement had been through a really deep trough in the 50s and had started to come back in the early 60s. Some of my older comrades had been in the Young People's Socialist League, which was the youth group of the Socialist Party in the United States. It had a strong left part. Most of the Socialist Party uh, was either into sterile electoralism or um, into reforming the Democratic Party. But there was this left group that included a number of people who were my older mentors um, who believed that we needed to build an independent working class movement and so on. Um, those people, some of those people, they coalesced in several, several places in the middle 1960s, beginning in 1964 and 5. The first of them was the Berkeley Inter in Independent Socialist Club, which played a critical role in the free speech movement. One of its leaders was Hal Draper, who had been uh, a leading activist in the Socialist Workers' Party and later the uh, what was called the Third Camp offshoot of that called the Workers' Party. Third Camp meant that the Workers' Party did not accept that either capitalism or Soviet-style communism was an acceptable view. So the idea was the Third Camp of so, you know, genuine socialism, which was democratic as well as collective. That was the basic idea. Um, so Hal was, you know, and Hal was like, you know, he had been a leader in the student movement in the early 1930s, uh, anti-war student movement. He had been editor of the Workers' Party's paper and so forth. He was still alive and active. He was a, working as a librarian at UC Berkeley during the free speech movement. And he, his brother, by the way, is Theodore Draper. Um, and... So Hal, or Hal is dead, and I think so is, so is Theodore, but um, Hal was like the kind of intellectual father figure to a lot of the people who led the FSM. Um, the FSM? Free speech movement okay. in Berkeley. Yep. Yep. Sorry. So um, that was that group, and they started to revive those ideas. They published a pamphlet called Two Souls of Socialism. Um, and... There was also a group in New York around a guy named Cy Landy, which was also, and, and they start, I think, in, inspired by the Berkeley ISC, they formed a New York ISC. We heard about it in Baltimore, and we formed something called the Baltimore Independent Socialist Union because we had some people who were from slightly different currents. Uh, they were not the, the differences were not large, but sometimes those things, you know, so we had to tread a little lightly about that. So we called it the Baltimore ISU. Um, we put out a pamphlet called Toward the Working Class, 
which enunciated actually some of those ideas that I had just been describing it became so attractive to me. Uh, in the summer of 1966, um, a guy named Fred Epsteiner, who was also at Hopkins, who was one of the co-authors of that pamphlet, and I and somebody else drove a car from Baltimore with boxes, a couple of boxes of copies of that out to the SDS convention, Clear Lake, Iowa, in 1966, and we started to proselytize that idea. We made some critical connections. A guy named Steve Kindred, who later became a key organizer of um, Teamster Rank and File. Um, his father, was a, who was a Methodist minister, owned the church camp where the SDS had its convention, so that was the sort of funny connection. Steve died a few years ago. That was very sad. Um, so um, there were these things prop, cropping up around the country called independent socialist clubs. We had basically the same politics. We distinguished ourselves from the Communist Party. We distinguished ourselves from the Socialist Workers Party. We distinguished ourselves from all the tons of Maoists who were around that, you know, that, that you know, and the leadership of SDS, which was by the late 60s, 68, 69, you know, was moving into uh, insane street fighting and, and uh, terrorism around, around the weathermen. Um, and so we had a different politics. We thought, you know, this is, you know, you have to build the revolution from the ground up. And so in, we, formed, we confederated in the 1967, probably, is the Independent Socialist Clubs of America, which is kind of a loose federation. Um, I don't, I'm not sure, did, you know, we did have a, pop, a, a publication, didn't come out very often. The, the various clubs all functioned independently. Um, we got very involved in 1968, first in the Cleaver campaign, when Eldridge Cleaver, the Black Panther leader, was going to run for president at the, at the head of a, um, you know, a left alternative to Humphrey and, um, and Johnson. Um, and, you know, so there was a Cleaver campaign. He was actually ruled off the ballot in New York, but Dick Gregory got on the ballot, and so we supported him. Um, and uh, so, you know, uh, and SDS, which was, although um, a lot of our people actually in the ISC and the, you know, the various ISCs were not necessarily SDS members because some places there were, the SDS was not particularly strong, like in Berkeley. Um, but SDS was sort of the fulcrum of the new left because it was the largest organization. And as it started going crazier and crazier, you know, we could see that there was a split coming. Um, because there was the, the deep factionalism between the SDS national leadership around Bill Ayers, Bernadine Dorn, uh, various uh, J.J. Jacobs, others that I'm not thinking of, uh, Kathy Wilkerson. Um, they had one viewpoint, and then there was PL, the Progressive Labor Party, which had launched a sort of deep penetration campaign in SDS 
winning control of a number of chapters, and they were competing for leadership of SDS. This, they, it came to a head at the 1969 convention in this late spring of 69, as I recall. I was at that time, I think in my third month at the Baltimore Sun <laughs> as copy editor, but I got the time off and I went. Um, it was, you know, the atmosphere was terrible. They were, you know, they were, you know, the two factions had these, um, you know, security squads of not firearm armed, but people who were armed with clubs and stuff. And I mean, like the, uh, you know, physical violence was, you know, close to the surface there. Um, they held, you know, the, the, the actual competition between PL and the, and the, what, later became the Revolutionary Youth Movement leadership. Um, we were sort of sidelined in that. We didn't take part. But what we did do was we managed to grab a meeting room off to the side while the two big factions were fighting it out and called for a meeting of people who wanted to start an independent socialist organization that was, you know, along the lines that I described, that is, not supportive of the Soviet Union, not supportive of Western capitalism. Uh, people had different positions on exactly how, what kind of level of support you would give to Cuba or the NLF in Vietnam. We were all for immediate withdrawal from Vietnam. And so there were, the, so, so those are kind of some of the differences within us. But we said, we have enough in common. We, we want you folks to come and we need to meet in this meeting room and see if we've got something to start an organization. And, you know, quite a few people did. I forget whether it was 30 or 50 or whatever, but there were a bunch of people who said, yeah, let's do this. In September of 1969, that came to fruition. The ISCA formed what became the IS, who became International Socialists, which was conceived as a much more tightly organized organization with a national headquarters and which would have a policy that it would implement. Um, I mean, I think chapters were, were allowed some autonomy, but not, not, you know, not, it wasn't the loose federation that we'd had before. Um, the founding convention was, I forget where it was, was it Chicago or in somewhere? I forget. Um, might've been in Detroit, but we, um, I went to that and we started and by that time, it was, you know, we'd, we were like three years down the road from Clear Lake, where we had been circulating this stuff about working class orientation. By 69, we, that was the predominant idea. The differences were over how you implemented that and how quickly. This organization started with around 300 members, as best I know. There are other people probably who know this better. I believe Joel Geyer probably knows this somewhat better than I do, but I think I have the basic same knowledge. So um, we founded the organization. Its initial headquarters were in New York, but there was a strong push among those who wanted to get into industry to move it to the Midwest, and that was what was done. Uh, the headquarters was moved to Detroit, um, and people were encouraged to come to the Middle West, particularly into heavy industry, and to get jobs there. I believe, although I don't have hard numbers, I was never in, in the central office of the organization, but the generally accepted figure is 
that from 1969 to the middle 70s, the number of people who went through, the, who were at, or members of IS at various times, probably exceeded 500. The number of people who went into the industry was probably around 250 to 300. There were enough to build a real, some kind of a base with some real connections in the working class, and that was an outstanding achievement in my view. Um, nevertheless, there were dissenting voices. There were, for, for example, Hal Draper did not want to follow that path at all. He wanted us to be a propaganda center, um, and when he didn't get his way, he quit with some associates. Then there was another small group that quit over uh, the question of whether you formally supported the NLF in Vietnam or not. And that group left too. I think they were expelled, but I think they also, they set it up with provocations that they, that they yeah, so there was that. They started another group? I don't think so. I mean, they, they started an informal group, but I don't think they, they ever had a name. Um, there was a, yet a third group um, that was um, later became known as the RSL, the Revolutionary Socialist League. That took a large group out. Those were people, in my humble view, who were not comfortable with the real work of building a movement. They really liked to argue um, points of theory. Um, some of them were anarchists, really, um, and were... Um, their their uh, vision of class struggle was debating other socialists. And um, now that's a harsh viewpoint, but I think there are many of the comrades who would agree that that was who, what they were. They were expelled, and we, we lost around 100 people with that. But we lost people who really could not work with anyone else in the organization. So actually, that it wasn't an amicable divorce, but it was a necessary one. So we had those splits. Um, in the middle 70s, while we had built a base in the working class and, you know, had started to take part, you know, we, peop, some people like Steve Kindred were active, active in Teamster rank and file, which became uh, one of the constituent parts of the, that became TDU. Um, others of our comrades were active in opposition groups around in, in left groups in the UAW, left groups in the steelworkers. Some of our people supported um, Sedlowski and Balinov as they made challenges to the leadership there. We did that kind of thing. We did good work. We were also um, severely crippled, uh, and a number of people have said this, by the onset of the 1973-74 recession. The um, the oil crisis and the beginnings of, there was a book by somebody named Ferguson and somebody else called Right Turn, about the right turn in American politics at that time. That was very, very real. And that was, uh, it really um, was a big shock. Um, and then we had two more splits. We lost what became the ISO and we lost another group that was called Workers' Power, all before the end of the 70s. The ISO. The ISO left the IS and became a separate organization. Um, most of them were not comfortable 
with our with the dom with the I would say near exclusive emphasis on labor work in the organization. So the International Socialist Organization that started was, doing student organizing. Yes, it yeah. did, did that. It also and they did some some working class organization too. But they basically felt that we were getting too drawn into the details of um, labor politics, you know, of, of the specific politics of organized labor unions. And um, so, and I also think that there were people um, it was interesting, I, I believe and I don't know this because I, I was out of actually out of the IS. I left. I was isolated as a member at large. I was a union member, but nobody was in the IS was very interested in, in, in newspaper work, although that's something of a mistake, I believe, because newspapers have very volatile labor relations. But um, I, you know, so and I was a member at large. I got my discussion bulletins, but I had no one to work with. Um, I wrote for the Workers' Power, which was the paper of the IS in the early 70s, occasionally. But as I drifted away from it and kind of got myself more immersed into having what, quote, you might call a normal life, um, I eventually felt more and more guilty that I wasn't doing more. I was occasionally active in the union, but there weren't all that many ways to do it. I still didn't have much confidence in myself as a leader. Uh, and I resigned from the IS in the summer of 76 saying, you know, I just, um, I don't find a way for me to be active. I need to step away from this. And I, I was out for four years. And that, but so that's, the ISO left in 77 and I believe Workers' Power in 79. Both of them, I believe, were not rooted in Detroit or in the Midwest. One was rooted in New York and the other on the West Coast, I believe. Um, I think there was a sense that they felt alienated, that they weren't at the center of the organization. And there was also some craziness that went on in the IS. They, there was a you know, period of hyper-discipline, you know, where people were expelled from not being active enough, were you know, not being willing to move to some, such and such a place and get a job and such and such and such. You know, that kind of thing. It was too much, actually, really. There was, you know, people were too convinced that if they just worked every everybody hard enough, you know, socialist revolution would be here. And of course it wasn't. Um, and, you know, we had one setback in the early middle 70s around that and then another big one in 1979-80, of course, with the Reagan's election and the, the further turn to the right and so on. Um, the IS declined in membership. I rejoined in 1979 because I had not only come to the Times, but I had become active in the union. I was recruited to be a shop steward by a woman who was one of the leaders of the leftish faction in the union who had also been a founder of the Coalition of Labor Union Women, Betsy Wade. She recruited me to be a shop steward. I became a shop steward. I, you know, there's a left ticket that ran in 1980. We won. Um, I became grievance chair, which is like the chief steward. Um, so suddenly I felt I was okay again. I was actually doing my part. So I rejoined the IS, but it was evident that things were difficult. Um, 
the organization was holding its own. You know, it it, it you know it started labor notes in 1979, I think as a way um, to reach broader layers of left inclined unionists than you could on a one on one basis, particularly in an organization that never had more than 300 members at a time and, and probably had quite a few fewer than that at various. Yeah, so labor notes was a way around that. Um, and, but it took labor notes a while to settle in. You know, it, it, you know, the first conference, which I went to, I think it was 82. I think there were, you know, maybe 100, 150 people, which we thought was considerable success. But, you know, conferences now have 2,000 people. Um, so... This is all just to give it perspective. Um, so we merged, we brought worker, workers' power, which had left us. They decided, some of them, that the, the split had been a mistake, and some of our people decided the split had been a mistake. So we merged our New York branches, in which I was a member of the IS branch, and we merged those two and then the two national organizations and a fragment of the SWP that had, it was a, for one fragment, the, the one that split off from the SWP was called Socialist Action and then part of Socialist Action split off calling itself Socialist Unity. Um, and there's a very characteristic thing about so splits in socialist organizations is that when an organization splits and looks for a new name, it chooses a name that denies exactly what it has just done. So an organization that's born in a split calls itself Socialist Unity. Go figure. Um, anyway, uh, so they joined us. We had enough people to rebuild, re you know, organization with 150, 200 people again. Um, I actually had a hard time in the New York branch. I felt that the, the New York branch was one of the few people where people who had come out of IS were in a minority. Um, and in fact, uh, I think at the time of merger, the IS branch in New York City had less than 10 members. We may have had eight or nine. Um, many of them didn't join the merged organization, and some of them who did didn't stay. Um, by 1987, two years after the branch merged, I was the last ISer in the branch. And I felt that I was being marginalized in the branch. I don't know. I mean, I suppose it's okay that this is in the, the archive, although it's very far from the, the oral, transoral history. <laughs> I mean, my transness is interwoven in this. But anyway, this is, you know, if, if, you, want, if you want a an insider's account of how socialist organizations developed in that period, this is all true. Um, anyway, so uh, I eventually left the branch, wasn't a member for, of Solidarity at all for about 10 years and rejoined. Now, this is interesting and actually brings us back to the trans part. When, as I mentioned, in the late 80s, 70, late 90s, I was, I was coming out at work. I was transitioning. I was in these support groups. I was seeing this dramatic social disadvantage. Did not have it. I needed, see, I could do labor work on my own even without a socialist organization to lead me or give me some, you know, I could do it. I knew how to do it. LGBT work, I really didn't know how to do. Hadn't done it before. I wanted to find somebody with a socialist perspective on this. 
I rejoined Solidarity in 1999. Um, and I found that although there were, were some LGNB members, um, there was very little LGBT work done, coordinated work that was done by the organization. I wrote articles for Against the Current, um, which are still available. I wrote one about that period in the 80s of the, you know, the, the deepest, um, you know, like the, the, the worst time for a trans movement. Uh, it's all there somewhere. Um, and, but the organization did not prioritize that work. Uh, and it wasn't like there was a decision at the top, oh, we will not prioritize this work. It was actually that the LGBT comrades themselves, by and large, were focused on other things. So um, I didn't find that that was all that useful to me. Uh, I was a member for four years. I actually did some useful educational work in solidarity. I, there was a socialist school. The, the, every year, there's, a, there's conventions here every two years. And the, year, the non-convention years, they have the socialist um, uh, summer school. And I gave some talks about trans people. And that was interesting and useful. Um, I met you at one of those conventions. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yes. So I left again in 2003. I began, I went plunged deeper into NGO and related world because uh, private work is a little different. It's not wholly an L, uh, you know, a classic NGO. I mean, because. So we were cut off because uh, the recorder okay. card filled up. Yeah. And uh, where were we? Um, well, you were talking about uh, your brief seduction into supporting Democratic oh, yes, Party that's candidates right. so in I voted, 2008. I voted for Obama, and um, I was somehow still, I mean, you know, I had the kind of typical left wing malaise that you think, well, he's got to be better than Bush, right? You know, or he's got to be better than McCain. Uh, and so on. And, you know, you were so, like, tired of, you know, eight years of Republican Party that you sort of, you know, you do it. So I did it. And I also had the classic um, uh, revival of consciousness. And it came so quickly after the election. I remember the election, um, you know, and, and Obama wins by a really large margin. And then, like two or three weeks later, now when was this? this is late '08. I had not quite yet been laid off by Pride at Work. That that came at the end of November. But uh, you know, somewhere in the very late November, I believe Obama named his economic team, and it was headed by Robert Rubin, Larry Summers, Timothy Geithner, uh, and the whole Wall Street crowd. And I remembered that in 1992, my friend Sam Farber told me that he knew that the game was up with Clinton when Clinton named Lloyd Benson to be his secretary of the treasury. So, and I recognized that I had, you know, gone from disappointment to hatred for the Clintons over those eight years. And um, 
you know, and then, you know, Obama names the same Wall Street crowd. And I'm thinking, okay, maybe he won't be as repulsive personally as Bill, but he, um, he's policy wise, this isn't very different. We can't expect for I was also deeply repelled uh, during the, uh, you know, like the beginning of, after Obama takes office in the first nine months, they're talking about um, universal health care. And I remembered that, you know, uh, people came to testify for single payer and they weren't allowed, they were not, they were not given um, spots to testify, you know, and then they would stand up and, and try to shout their testimony anyway and they'd be arrested. And so, you know, it's very clear that the Democratic Party was not going to allow anything, you know, it would make some gesture to the left, but it would be, at, you know, and it was like really strikingly similar to 92 in that what they came up in, with in 92 was this horrendously complicated managed care system that managed to preserve, I think, all the players except, I'm not sure whether, maybe the, the um, maybe in 92, I'm not sure whether they actually placated the insurance companies. I think they, maybe they didn't, and that may have been one of the things that killed it. But the, but the, the 92, the, the Hillary, Claire, Hillary Care plan was a nightmare of complexity um, that, you know, it was particularly bad about allowing people to go to whatever doctor they wanted, you know, because you had to get into these managed care practices. And so along comes the ACA 16 years later, and it's very soon apparent that it is also a, a horrendously complicated system that preserves the, the monetary interests of all the big players and means that if anyone suffers, it's going to be the people below. So I was um, repentant <laughs> of my excursion into uh, mainstream politics. And uh, as a way of um, making that repentance real, um, you know, and I had just been laid off by Pride. I was laid off at the end of 08. Uh, just we didn't they didn't have any money. Um, because all of the big unions had suffered in the financial disaster and there were lots of people being laid off, dues income was drying up. So uh, private work suddenly had no money. I was laid off. Um, so several things happened. One, um, in the spring of 2009, uh, a couple of Solidarity members moved to Baltimore. I was notified of that. I... Uh, said, okay, I want to rejoin. I did. Um, and also, um, prior at work, although I was laid off, I continued to keep connection. I would, you know, I, there was a board meeting in Washington. I wasn't a member of the board, but I went anyway. Um, took part. And in 09, it became clear that um, we were going to have to replace, uh, it's going to be a replacement of leadership in private work. Nancy Wolforth, who had been the female identified vice president from foundation to 2009, was stepping down. 
Um, the other co-president was also stepping, was not going to run again. The executive director who had laid me off um, uh, shopped for a job in the Obama administration and got one in the Labor Department. And so he, he uh, delayed his... Um, I, I don't know whether it was delayed or not, but, but anyway, he still was president, executive director of Pride at Work through the convention in September of 2009. Um, but we knew we had to replace the whole elected officers, and we knew that Jeremy, the executive director, not Jeremy Davis, but Jeremy Bishop, uh, that he was going to leave. So we were starting from scratch. Jeremy Bishop and Nancy Wolfworth, both of whom knew that they were leaving, tried to cobble together a slate of officers. Um, I said, okay, I'll be willing to serve as an officer of some kind. And at a certain point they said, you're gonna be co-president. And I said, really? Um, and, you know, and then it became clear as I sort of looked around at who else was possible, I was probably better qualified than anybody else. So I did run for co-president uh, and, you know, of course I was elected and because it, it wasn't contested. I mean, boy, nobody, not an awful lot of people were looking to rescue a nearly bankrupt organization with, with no staff. Um, and so uh, I, we, right at, I mean, I took office right at the, I mean, like at the end of that, the last, when the convention was gaveled, to a close, that's when the new officers took office. So and this is the AFL-CIO convention or the... Pride at Work convention, Pride which was work. actually okay. at, in Pittsburgh, where and while the AFL-CIO okay. was also having its convention. Got it. So um, and when it was, when the convention closed, uh, I was the co-president along with Stan Kino, who was a, a flight attendant based in San Francisco. Uh, and we were the two top officers, and we had this. We the first th order of business was to form a search committee, to hire a new executive director, um, and we, you know, we went through all of that, and we hired Peggy Shorey, who became our executive director for several years, um, and you know, I, I became in effect the the most. Uh, present of the of the two co-presidents because Stan was one based on the west coast two was flying a lot and three <coughs> excuse me and three uh he his uh, he flew long distance routes to Australia and China um he wasn't available a lot I lived in Baltimore right up, you know, 40 miles from Washington. So I could be fairly hands-on. And so uh, I wound up uh, being the co-president and it was a learning experience, um, which I think at this point, um, I want to think before I go any further into how that evolved. I mean, it evolved well, but there were political conflicts that I want to think about how I, how I talk about them. Sounds good. Okay, so uh, more questions if you have them. Well, uh, or you need to go home. Um, I I should get some food. I think. Yes.
And we're well over the time that you said you had available. Do you, what's your timing? <laughs> well, it's 10 minutes to 7, which means that it will probably be between 7.30 and 8 when I get back to Dan and Sherry's, which is probably about time for me to, so I think we probably should get, okay. call it a night. So um, we can talk, uh, I can ask my questions about Niagara and Gender Pack and yeah. Pride at Work and yeah. NCTE when, um, in part two. When I come back next. That sounds great. That'll be great. Anything you'd like to close with? Uh, no, not really. Oh, yes, one thing. This is just a loose end in case um, we leave a false impression. Well, my parents did discourage me when I was young from, from any, any man manifestation of femininity. When I came out to them in 1998, or this the end of 1997, um, they were a bit skeptical when I told them. They thought I was about to come out as gay, but I told, told them, no, it's gonna, I'm going to change sex and da 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 and you know they they were um thought you know they thought it was like really a big shock however i have to give them a lot of credit um i told them when i was in the end of 97 right around the holidays i went down to florida where they lived to spend a week with them um so i told them you know i would come back one more time before I, you know, openly transitioned. And in the meantime, my mother, who had actually um, had more difficulty than my father, went to the public library in Clearwater, Florida, and withdrew a copy of a book called True Selves, uh, which is, I think, still regarded as one of the best book introductory books for people to learn about transitioning people particularly who are fit maybe family members so she took that book out she read it um and also after i went home but before i went down the next time i was pretty conscientious about calling them fairly frequently to sort of give them updates on my life and i noticed you know i mean later I, as i read back into it they must have noticed that I sounded a lot happier. Um, so when I came back the second time, my mother had come all the way around. Um, she actually gave me clothes that she thought might fit me. Um, and, oh, must have been three, four years later after the millennium. Uh, so one time I was just down there visiting. I was still working. Uh, in New York, so I was not, I didn't have a ton of free time, but I was down for a visit, probably holidays or maybe sometime, I don't know, anyway, we, that, one of our family things when I was growing up was eating was only part of dinner. At, you know, during and after dinner, you, we would have these long, wide-ranging conversations about lots of different stuff. So I'm down there in Florida, I'm talking to them again. We're having a long, wide-ranging conversation about lots of different stuff. And I, I'm sounding off on something. I, forget. I don't know whether it's politics or whatever. And my, I forget whether it was my father or my mother, just stopped me and said, uh, 
we can't tell you how much good this has done you. Mm. Um, they said, and it was true, that before I transitioned and when I still was, you know, very, you know, ambivalent, ambiguous and hidden, you know, my when I would go to visit them, I would, you know, I would I would relate to them. I'd be friendly, but I would also need alone time quite a bit. And when I was came back after transition and I actually sat with them without budging, just talking and talking, um, they said that the, the part of me that had been guarded and that had receded from them or tended to pull away from them had, had gone away. Um, you know, so that was the most wonderful validation. And frankly, um, until both of them died, we had a, you know, one first and then the other, my mother in 2007, my father in 2009. Um, I would say the relationship we had was the best of our lives. You know, so there you go. That's beautiful. Thank you. Thank you so much, Donna. Oh, thank, you know, thank you for persisting and for putting up with my skittishness that, you know, and, you know, I, I you know, um, yeah, I mean, it's something that I, you know, I am a little, you know, I always thinking about if I say something that's going to offend somebody, is it going to be a problem? But then, I, you know, everything I say um, is stuff that I've truly experienced. And it's, I don't think, you know, I mean, some people may disagree with it, but I don't think I've been really vicious toward anyone. So there you go. All right. <laughs>